Hello and welcome to End on End. I'm Brian. I'm Jeff. And it's just like old times, my friend. Hell yeah, it's been 10 months. Let's do it. Wow. See, I was trying to, uh, in my brain, I'm like, how long has it been? Three years? What it? It's been, uh, well, <laughs> it feels I, like. I, 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 I did that. First of all, it's awesome. It's 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 so much fun being back here. It's, oh, it's so good to have you. Yeah, I don't even know what to say. Well, I, I hope you find something to say in the next couple hours. My last episode. Remember what yeah. my last episode was? Uh, don't do this to me. <laughs> was it the uh, flex your head? It's got to be. My last episode? <laughs> no, that was yeah, your man. first. I do know that. Yeah, your last episode. Tell me it was a Jawbox release. No. It was not. Oh, no. It wasn't Fugazi. It was not Fugazi. How was it? Holy Rollers. It was not Holy Rollers. Okay, I'm not going to. That's, that's <laughs> I'm going to go through every band. It was Circus Lupus Super Genius. That's right. Which was Discord 63. And that episode posted... October 27th, 2022. So it's basically, so by the time that this episode airs, it'll probably be just around a little over 10 months. Almost a year. Since, yeah. since, since it came, I was supposed to be on hiatus and uh, yeah, I kind of left the stage completely there. And since that time you've done 19 episodes, all of which came out in 1992 I was going to say. With the exception of, uh, yeah, you've been stuck in 92 for a very, very long time. I think you mentioned recently that like 92 was sort of their Discord's peak year as far as releases. So it was their uh, the Circus the Lupus record. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> the Super Genius came out in April of 92. And you've been in 92 all that time, except for In on the Kill Taker, because that right. came out in 93, but just, I guess they saved that catalog number. So it's been uh, 19 episodes you've done since I last appeared, and I listened to every single one of them and enjoyed them immensely. And there hasn't been a day or an episode that's gone by where I didn't feel like, oh, man, I should be on this episode. I should be on the show. Wait, I got something to say. Where, and, you, where uh, you didn't feel like or where you did feel you did. Feel like. I was saying I've, I feel that way every episode. Oh, yeah, sure. And so I've missed this tremendously i've missed talking to you brian tremendously although people should know that you and i like chat like almost every day anyway yeah um yeah i've been lurking in the background i've been still adding the songs to the spotify playlist which is just takes such an incredibly immense amount of time to do um, <laughs> uh -huh. i think it's somewhere around yeah. four seconds per song um well you got to find it you got to click it's 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 do you hear that lifting i what? i hear it in the background it's like the sound of tiny violins yes uh <laughs> fuck you so <laughs> but no it's it's uh it's really really good to be back and be doing this yeah yeah we if you've listened to all the episodes you hear you come up you know the ghost of kaplan comes up almost every single episode by the time we try almost. to, try to name every, the playlist as much as anything Oh yes, that's comical. That that provides me endless <laughs> amounts of joy, and I only wish that I hadn't made the name even more convoluted. Oh God, of course you do. Yeah, and pure Mackay and Discord fashion, you you never left. You just went on indefinite hiatus. So here we are. And I'm coming off the hiatus right now. 
at I least know. at least for this episode. <laughs> yeah, right. And probably coming back on. But this is not a uh, you know, this is not a one-off reunion. I do plan on when the opportunity arises, uh, you know, to maybe come back and and co-host again after this because uh I enjoyed this. I enjoyed all the preparation leading up to it. It was like, you know, putting on an old comfy, comfy jacket or something like that. And and I do want to say too that I really enjoyed what you've done and, and Drew and Scott, who have both done, you know, stellar jobs and uh, really, really enjoy have really enjoyed listening to the episodes. So thanks. Yeah, I mean I didn't And you're not honest... so bad either. <laughs> well, well. No, I honestly was a little, I was determined to keep going for one, but uncertain how the shape and flow and success of how it would go after you left. And thankfully, we've limped along, but your presence is definitely missed. So it's great to have you back on. And I guess we should probably move into some other areas so we don't uh, spend the first two hours talking about old days. I agree. But no, yeah, it, it's it's great to talk to you again on air. So with that, Jeff, you know what happens here. What the hell have you been up to uh, in the last 10 months? Have you checked anything out? You been into anything? Had any changes in your life? Anything to report? Yeah, you know, so I just want to say, first of all, that one thing that I'm really impressed with uh, you and Scott and Drew is that, you know, all four of us are of a certain age, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, mm-hmm. I actually turned 50 last month. I jumped off over that cliff. Oh, wow. Um, That's a big, and one. you know, there, yeah, it's a, it's a big cliff, <laughs> but there's a thing about how, you know, when you reach a certain age, you kind of stop checking out new music. You know, usually that age is much, much younger than we are now. And people just resort to their old standards. Mm-hmm. And what they and, listen to as a young person, as a teenager. Yeah. 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 And I really commend, and you guys, because the opening segments, all of you every week always have all this new stuff you're absorbing and listening to. And that's amazing. Amazing. I think it was, if I had to like uh, critique myself, I feel like that was always the weakest, my weakest part of the show was coming up with new stuff because I am guilty of that sometimes of just sort of, I want to just rediscover my own record collection. And mm-hmm. I feel like there was a time when we were younger, like in the early nineties, late eighties, where it was easy to figure out, you know, what should I pick up now? You know, either a record label or there was only a handful of zines you really trusted. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like it's such a deluge of new music that just comes at you from everywhere. That it's almost it, like, it I comes, don't even know. And it goes so just as fast too. It's like people discover something new, rave about it. And then they forget about it. Like no lasting power. Yeah. Like records, they come out right and they have no lasting power at all. Mm-hmm. Like even like a great record that it, it came out after I left the show, but the Hammered Holes EP. Oh, yeah. Which everyone was talking about for like a couple of months. Like that was pretty good, but you don't really hear anyone talking about it like now, yeah. <laughs> you know, as much. It's old even news. It's a fantastic record. It's old news <laughs> on to the next thing. Yeah. And nobody ever talked about like the new Soulside record at all, mm-hmm. um, you know, for more than a few days. Um, so I'm guilty of that too. And I just want to say that I think it's amazing that, you know, at our old elderly advanced senior citizen ages that you guys still, uh, and I'm just, I'm kidding about that, but 
A-A-R-P-H-C. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that you you guys have all done that. But, you know, the reason that I had I had left the show originally was because I was preparing for this Husker Du charity show. And I knew that I was going to be so tied up in rehearsals for that, that I wasn't going to be able to give the show the time. So um, that show happened in December and was one of my most favorite live music experiences that I've ever participated in. Um, the show was sold out at Union Pool in Brooklyn. We raised a few thousand dollars for New York Cares. Just getting to play these songs that I've loved since I was a kid and with some singers who like Mick Collins from the Dirt Bombs and Anthony Roman from like Garden Friday and Radio 4. And for me, especially being a huge, huge New Bomb Turks fan, getting to jam with Eric Davidson. You know, he came to a whole bunch of practices and just like I'm standing there and I'm playing Celebrated Summer. That's he did Celebrated Summer and New Day Rising. And just like here I am playing my favorite song of all time. And Eric is like standing two feet away from me singing it. It was just like, yeah. I, like I couldn't even, you know, I fanboyed out completely. That had to be mind blowing. I mean, to yeah. if you whispered that in the ear of uh, the 18 year old Jeff Kaplan, you would have probably. Oh, man you know punched you in the face said get out of here old man yeah Don't totally tell me these stories <laughs> oh man and and he was just so cool because i did have to fan you know because i had some interactions with him when i was younger like he got me into a show before i was 21 like a few months before i was 21 and they wouldn't let me in and he saw me on the street and he's like what's going on and i'm like they won't let me in i'm not 21 yet he's like come with me and he like said i was like his cousin or something and got me in <laughs> And I told him this story. I'm like, I don't mean to make you feel old, but I'm my next birthday, I'm going to be 50. But this happened. And he's like, you know, I don't remember that, but that sounds like something I would do. <laughs> but he was super, super cool. So that was an incredible experience. And and it was great. And, uh, you know, on the downside, even if I had not gone on hiatus, um, I would have had to have gone on hiatus anyway at some point, just because uh, my father has been going through a whole bunch of health things. He was out of the house for three months um, unexpectedly, you know, he had surgery, which I thought he would be home the next day and he didn't come home for three months and, you know, my mom's gone. I'm an only child. So I kind of had to take care of everything. Hmm. And so it left me, uh, I'm still dealing with now, although now that he's home, it's not as intense, yeah, but I mean, you know, that this, is, that's talk about some heavy lifting. That's yeah. It's yeah. It's been an educational experience. <laughs> I'll just say that. Uh, but he's, he's doing okay. You know, I mean, he's 82. You know, I mean, what are you going to do? This is, if yeah. we're lucky, if we're fortunate enough to have parents grow into old age, this is one of the things you kind of have to, uh, have to do. You have to do it, you know? And, uh, he certainly was, and is an exceptional father and deserving of all the attention and, you know, assistance I could provide to him. But that certainly would have meant very, very little time to do something like this, which takes a lot of work. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. And. I always was uh, impressed with how much work you did put into it, not just listening to the record a couple of times and bullshitting on the mic. You know, there's a lot more that goes into it. And speaking of which, what, or speaking tangentially, how was your dad's reaction uh, when you, one, started playing music and two, uh, were into punk rock? <laughs> Extremely supportive. Um, very supportive. You know, my whatever, you know, punk rock anger I had, you know, people get that, you know, that anger that makes them want to express themselves through punk rock through many different ways. You know, some certainly because of a, a broken home, 
and anger at parents and things like that. For me, it came from a different place. My folks were very supportive. It wasn't their music. There was plenty of times they would come into my room and tell me, you know, you got to turn that down and listen <laughs> to that on headphones. Like, I distinctly remember listening to Saccharin Trust's Pagan Icons. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And my yeah. dad charging in and we're like, listen, I don't care that you're listening to that. Wear headphones, you know, <laughs> um, for sure. That's, that's the best you could hope for, though, but, especially back then. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, I think my mom made me return a Minutemen shirt once. <laughs> because it had like sickles and hammers on it. And she was like, no, you're not wearing, we're not, we're not wearing that. Uh, she made you return it. That's awesome. My mom yeah, would have yeah, just thrown it away. Yeah. No, no. She's like, you know, you got to return it. When you're out of the house, you could wear it. But when you're in this house, mm -hmm. you know, come on. Iron Maiden shirts were okay though. Yeah. <laughs> any case, uh, no, they were, they were supportive. Uh, certainly supportive of any artistic endeavors I had. And however I chose to, to find myself, you know, they were always supportive of it they knew it wasn't anything that was uh you know hateful or anything like that so right. no or pretty destructive good. to yourself or others yeah. no no and i was you know i got good grades and i was you know i was i was a good kid and you know well as far as what they knew <laughs> i was a good kid <laughs> uh you as know outside the house knew. questionable yeah. but yeah. yeah so no they were they were okay so i figured though i would go through like some shows that i went to since the last time i'll, I'll do that Absolutely, man. What, uh, what have you been checking out? Yeah. So uh, so very shortly after my last episode, early November, I went to see uh, AOD, Adrenaline OD. Oh, yeah. Played a rare show. I was really bummed that they were supposed to play at our community center, one of the Burke community center shows that, you know, so Rob and myself mm -hmm. and Ken Smallwood, who co-hosted last episode, we all put on shows at that community center and AOD was was one of the shows that was supposed to happen and they dropped out, unfortunately. But I had that first album and some comp tracks and I, I loved, loved everything I had at that point anyway. so They were yeah. really one of like the fastest bands at that time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, blazing fast and extremely funny. Like exactly. their onstage like, banter. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I mean, no effects makes no secret that they were very influenced by aod mm. right down to the between song stage banter oh, i mean if you've ever seen aod play live you could be like oh i could totally see how like no effects ripped this off that's shtick um oh. but they were playing some shows because their drummer dave scott wrote a biography yeah um which i bought and have not read yet although i i heard it's like gut bustingly funny which i don't doubt at all so uh saw that uh also saw merciful fate Oh. In this big gothic, beautiful theater in Brooklyn, which was totally oh, wow. amazing, and that's a that's you know. a a good pairing, yeah, yeah, that's a good that was a good one. Um, Hammered Halls, I saw in early December, excellent. You know that record. I think everybody really, the entire Discord underground really coalesced around that record. Yeah, I saw so many people saying how like this is the best Discord record in years. This is right. you know Alex's finest vocal performance on any record ever, which it might be. Sure. Um, in some ways, for sure. And I think it just surprised people how it wasn't just uh, not embarrassing for an old, old, old scene people, but how it if it was a brand new band, people would still be just as into it. And when you saw him, was it with Mary or was it with Brendan on bass? Yes. Brendan was playing bass. Yeah. And wow, what a what a what a embarrassment surprise, of right? riches. Yeah. <laughs> It's that like guy this guy is just as good on bass as he is on drums. Come on, yeah. it's so unfair. 
It's so incredibly unfair. But they do a great job of like pulling from the past, but not so much that it just right. feels like they're playing off the past because there's definitely something new and original and creative happening too. I think it's a great, you know, a great uh, mixture of those of those things. No, that yeah, that's a really good point. Of course, you can pull out some influences from past, especially past uh, DC, but also uh, English uh, influence. But the way they put it all together, it feels very, uh, it's got a lot of character. It doesn't feel like, oh, this is just quote unquote, Alex's new project or whatever. Yeah. No, it feels like a band. Yeah. And um, yeah, excellent. Uh, so early January, I'll just mention this real quick, was down in DC. Um, it was kind of a weekend and it was uh, the Goons reunion weekends played the Black Hat, which I had not been inside the Black Hat uh, since the government issue show in 2010. Uh, so two man advantage played the night before at this club called the runaway. And we played with the very first band that I ever went on tour with, which was submachine um, from Pittsburgh who still around doing great things. And, you know, these guys took me, I was 20 going on 21. I literally did turn 21 on that tour. This was mm-hmm. uh, the summer of 94 life-changing experience for me. These guys were, you know, only a few years older than me, but at that age, it felt like they were much, much older than me. Oh, yeah. And it toured several times. And here I'm this, you know, total like newbie from the Long Island suburbs, you know, touring with these guys from Pittsburgh who had all been on their own since they were like 14. And uh, boy, did I learn a lot on that tour. <laughs> and you became was, a man. I, oh, I, oh, in more <laughs> ways than one, my friend. In more ways than one. And it, but it was like, I, had crossed paths with them here and there. Two man had played a couple of shows with them in Pittsburgh over the years on their occasional trips to uh, New York. I've seen them, but this was the most amount of time that we really got to hang out like for hours and talk. And uh, very, very sadly um, about a month or so ago, the guitar player whose name is also Jeff, he was big Jeff. I was little Jeff. If you could imagine me being in a band where I'm little Jeff uh, passed away. So that really broke my heart into a million pieces when I heard that. And uh, so I'm just really happy that I got to spend some real good quality time with him back in the beginning of the year, you know, before he, uh, you know, before he passed and uh, you know, for the goons who played the next night and they played with HR, which just made me incredibly sad. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it was yeah. not seeing see him it. on stage was great. Cause I've never seen him live before in any capacity, but you it was still it, probably haven't. And, Many ways. No, it was terrible. It was terrible. Yeah, it, was, it, yeah. was, it was not not good. And the FUs played too, which was cool. Mm. But the guitar player for the Goons, uh, PJ, also had died a few weeks before that show. Um, he wasn't going to play the show. He was sick. He was in the hospital. He suffered from cystic fibrosis and probably should have died before he turned 20. And he ended up making it to like 50. Oh, wow. Uh, but he was a great, great guy because we spent, a, we played tons of shows with the Goons over the years. Uh, but they were ferocious. They were just so, so good. I was supposed to see Jay Robbins and Soulside because that was a tour that was happening around March. Uh, mm-hmm. But then Bobby got COVID and oh, they called off the whole tour. So yeah. I got the refund for my ticket. I almost went to go see fake names in early, early April, but I bailed and didn't. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so I do like the new album though. I do. Do you? Okay. Yeah. I think I like it more than you. Probably. It, it, that's not hard. Um <laughs> What, That's not hard. <laughs> speaking of Jawbox or Jay Robbins, 
you saw the show in New York where they played all Discord stuff. Did we talk about that? Yeah. So I was still doing the show. That was last July where they played three nights. Last July. Uh, they played okay. Discord night, then the Fear Your Own Special Sweetheart, then the self-titled. And I went the first night. I went the first night and Savak played. And I should also say that at the Who's Could Do thing, one of the songs, two mm-hmm. of the songs we did with uh, Sorab and yeah. Michael from Savak. So that connects me and you musically. Yeah. Yeah. Because now I have performed musically with Sorab and you were in a band with Sorab. Oh, yeah. Not the very first, but what feels like the first band I ever played in. I played in one right before it, but, you know, for all intents and purposes. So Never mind. Cool. I was like in, in, uh, what was the name of the band again? In, in <laughs> was, touch up front. It was like some. It was, was it, it? it was a name that this other band that probably you've never heard of either uh, used the same name inside out. Inside out. Right. 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 <laughs> I knew it was like some in name touch. like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, no, it was a pleasure to pleasure to play with him and, and hang out with him for a bit. So Sunny Day Real Estate and Appleseed Cast. I got to say, I mean, you know, I bought those Sunny Day Real Estate albums that original two records when they came out in the nineties. Mm-hmm. I don't really listen to Sunny Day Real Estate, but my friend really wanted to go and beg me to go with them. I said, okay, I gotta say, they were unbelievably good. Unbelievably mm-hmm. good. So that's that awesome. Was fun. Uh saw Chisel. Savak opened that show as well. You saw Chisel. Yeah. Right uh, them, in California. Yeah, at the Numero Fest thing. Yeah. What'd you think? I dug it. I dug it a lot more than Drew. Drew liked it okay, but I don't know. I don't remember what his issue with it was, but I I was looking forward to it, and I thought I'm totally lost his name all of a sudden. Um, Ted Leo. Yes, God, I thought Ted Leo uh, just oozed presence. You know, he's so natural on stage, perfect uh, mod punk energy and demeanor. You know, he's he's got it down and sounded great and yeah you know i thought they were really fun i I would love to i would love to see ted leo and the pharmacist which Mm -hmm. i never have no either. this is just this was you know second best you know it it was still a great show especially for only you know from what i understand they only had a two or three four or five practices before doing Mm -hmm. like that big show and i don't know i don't remember when in the chronology they played the show you saw it was after Okay. It was after I I saw them. I think it was uh, it was May. It was like mid May when they played, and oh, yeah. they did two nights here. And uh, yeah, and one thing I mean, I saw Chisel a bunch back in the day, and they were you know when you come back and do one of these reunion shows, in many ways like you actually have to be better than you ever were. In a lot of ways, yeah. Because you're you're competing against people's memories of you, and the legacy. And that's, yeah, that's hard to compete against. Yeah. Somebody's idyllic memory of what you were as a band, and now you're actually there. Mm-hmm. And if you fall flat, you know, you can forever stain somebody's memory of of your band. But they were great. I mean, I mean, they absolutely lived up to the task. And I forgot what a great rhythm section those guys are. I mean, I was uh, John say, Dugan, the drummer, yeah. right? Because he was in he was yeah. in Edsel as well. In Edsel, and he was in that but Indian uh, summer, Indian, Indian summer. summer. Yeah. Yep. Tremendous drummer, uh, Chris Norberg, the bass player, not just a great bass player, but an incredible vocalist. Yeah. In yeah. Fact, His vocals are really good in there. My favorite chisel song ever they played. And I don't remember the title. It's on the second album. 
I didn't even realize that he was the one who sang lead on it and mm. they played it. And his voice was just like, he could be the lead singer in any band he wants right. to be. So no, that was, that was a great show. Uh, headed off to Nashville for a few days, went to the Grand Ole Opry, immersed myself in some country music. That was interesting. Um, <laughs> like modern and upon stuff. my, no, not bro country. It was, uh, we oh, went to like this review show at the Grand Ole Opry. I mean, uh-huh. being there, it's, it's the most perfect acoustics of any mm-hmm. venue ever. It's like, it's like sitting in a church, like this church yeah. pews and it just sounds perfect. And it was like a review. It was like well-known country musicians, but playing old country stuff. Like it had to be, the rule was they, every song had to be at least 25 years old. It was a tourist show, you know, it was right. meant for tourists. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, but, but we had a good time down there. Upon my return, I saw uh, love and rockets mm-hmm. who uh, headed out on a old, uh, you ever get into Love and I Rockets? Surprisingly did a little bit. I never loved Love and Rockets, but you know, when they would come on, I'd be like, this is actually good for stuff that gets kind of played on the radio. Like I wouldn't turn off the radio and if it came on 120 minutes or whatever, I'd always right. be like, yeah. Hey, I should buy the record maybe. And I never did though. I mean, I got into them long before I even knew that there was a Bauhaus connection uh-huh. at all, you know, because wow. at that age I just didn't know whatever. But uh they were fantastic. They huh. were fantastic. And then my most recent show, I took a little road trip to Pennsylvania and saw that Descendants Circle Jerks Adolescence uh, tour. You know, Milo, unfortunately, we know we had a yeah. heart attack yeah. after that. But suppose, that was a Apparently, he's doing, doing a lot better. Yeah, they were posting pictures of him and Bill in the hospital and, you know, goofing off and giving the thumbs up. And mm-hmm. so hopefully a speedy return. And yeah. some, some great shows coming up, too. I'm seeing uh das Damen are playing like Ooh. their first show in 30 years so i see probably... they, they released something just the other day right they um are re-releasing their very first uh ep oh, like a, it was like a sick it's a six song 12 inch that came out originally on ecstatic was it ecstatic piece it was a yeah. sonic youth's record label yeah yeah ecstatic and piece. was very quickly reissued by sst which made them the first New York band to put something out on uh, SST. Mm. And they released quite a few records on SST. So uh, maybe I'll make the You Don't Know Mojack guys a little jealous <laughs> that I'm going to go see them. But they're playing two shows, one of which uh, the first one is in Jersey City, and I'm going to go that one. And then later in the year, we have uh, the Soul Side and Scream Tour. I know. I'm excited so that they're actually getting out here too. Yeah. That's awesome. So lots of live stuff and uh, yeah, records have come and gone and been filed away. <laughs> and, but anyway, I think that's uh that's a pretty good summary. So how about you? What have you been, uh, what have you been checking out? Well, you know, I. Vulture feather. <laughs> yeah, Who I have so not you, checked you out. You have been, you've been I, listening I have, to the show. <laughs> I have been listening to the show and, and I hear the worship for this band that yeah. I have yet to uh, check out, but I promise you that I will. Yeah, I'd be curious your opinion. I actually have a feeling you'd really like it, to be honest. Yeah, but <laughs> besides them, I've got, uh, and, you know, I'm going to make it easy on the listeners today. I've only got two uh, things to shout out, and one's pretty left field, as usual. You've gotten used to my non-Discord taste at times, I hope, folks. So the first thing is on a label called The Flinzer, which I've never heard of, but it's an L.A. band called Agriculture. With a name like that, you, I, you know, you, I would expect it to be 
whatever post punky or something but agriculture actually they call themselves ecstatic black metal black metal not death yeah metal. not death metal that's two different things i know i know don't I, get the metal hits pissed i know and i'm way more in the black camp than the uh, death camp when it comes to my metal mm-hmm. uh and the doom even more so agriculture they've got good lyrics they, they kind of i don't know their background i don't know anything about them i just discovered them i think through Bandcamp. uh they popped up on my feed and if they aren't ex-punk kids i would be really surprised because the lyrics are really intelligent kind of searching soul searching uh sometimes even existential but also very you know it, none of the tropes of whatever de- of like murder and you know whatever destruction and apocalypse. churches yeah yeah none, none of none of that stuff that i can see and yeah it's static black metal it actually is it slows down at times it gets symphonic it gets uh improvisational at times but it's mostly uh it, it's mostly pretty fast and it, it, if you can imagine somehow if rights of spring were a black metal band this isn't super far from what they might sound like because a lot of the you know the uh high tremolo picking but in a way that doesn't sound metal to me it just sound it does sound ecstatic it almost like free jazz uh sunny shrock style guitar they don't sound like jazz but it, it's got that kind of vibe where just you know the, these songs don't make you feel heavy and leaden they make you amped up and uh emotional it, it's it's good stuff like emo uh <laughs> emo black metal and because my imagination cannot merge rites of spring and black metal yeah well so i, I mean, think it's something i would have to hear yeah, you you do, and and I was trying to think of what other kind of reference I could throw in that's less, whatever, less specific than Rites of Spring, but I don't know, just something with that kind of vibe, or or even heroin, you know, that's probably even a closer one, because it's got the kind of chaoticness in the about to fall apart but doesn't type of vibe, and the just high octane, like you know, they're just sweating and breaking strings while they're playing this stuff and the vocals are in in that kind of screechy black metal vein and i believe it's a a female vocalist i often i can't tell with some of this stuff but (laughs) but they're good they're they're convincing there's one song where where there's some actual sung vocals and that's less convincing to me that one that one kind of falls a little flat but otherwise it's really i don't know it's thoughtful it's high energy and it's uh it's black metal for people who don't want to uh indulge in the cartoony aspects of the genre so i i really hope they tour out here which isn't too far from la so because i want to see what this band's like live if they actually do uh embody this kind of energy on stage the way it comes out on the record all right agriculture check yeah. that out What's number two? Yeah, yeah. I didn't even say the name of the album. Oh. Jesus, I can't read it. It's in that is is the logo written in that impossible to read? No, but the black but metal the, font. But the name of the album is. That's what I was just looking at. See, agriculture you can read. Oh yeah, nobody can read that. <laughs> that's yeah. Anyway, if you look up the band, you'll on Bandcamp or 
put in agriculture and black metal, you'll find it. But I've been playing it while I drive, which can be dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the other thing, this is a callback to one of our old shows that we did, Jeff, probably a year and a half, if not two years ago. I talked about a doc documentary that uh, one of our listeners hit me to that had a part in it, actually, uh, put it together called We Were There to Be There about the famous and infamous Cramps and Mutants show at Napa State Institution, mm, which is just down the that. road from yeah, which is just down the road from me too, which is wild. Uh, but that documentary, along with a remastered version of the the Cramps and Mutants sets from that show, uh, came out as a new package. I got on Blu-ray called The Cramps and the Mutants: The Napa State Tapes. Mm. Very affordable. And also tons, tons of extras in addition to the show itself, which is just flat out classic. I I can watch this thing all the time, man. I've seen it so many times in my life, especially the first time. It's just as a teenager, seeing the cramps play at a mental institution in 1978 is pretty uh, impactful. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got a couple extra sets on here from the mutants like at Mabuhe and uh, one at the Oakland School for the Deaf when they played the School for the Deaf for uh, Deaf Children in Oakland, which which is awesome too. Yep, that sounds like an interesting scenario. Yeah, and uh, some of the cool things on here also is some extra interviews like one with Lucy Sante, great writer who... In my ignorance, I'd seen the name pop up and I'm like, is Lucy related to Luke Sante? Because Luke Sante is a cultural critic and kind of a very poetic one that I've enjoyed for years and kind of fell off my radar reading wise. Apparently, Luke in her 60s transitioned to Lucy. So Lucy Sante is on here telling some stories about when she worked with uh, Lux at the Strand Bookstore in New York. And there's some fun stuff there. There's uh, very, very relevant to the show here. Jim Cohen has a conversation with Ian Mackay that's a good 20 plus minutes long on here. And it's great. They tell so many stories. They show some some photos of footage post the famous Cramps show in D.C., that was the benefit show uh, for the radio station that got shut down. That was the first punk show that Ian and Gee and so many people saw. And that's mentioned. Uh, that's mentioned in the book, right? In Dance of Days. I in think. Dance of Days. It's yeah. I remember in... talking about that, like at one of the book club. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That, uh, chapter. Yeah. As well as the last DC doc, but yeah, there's actually footage of the aftermath, which is <laughs> I've never seen, or not footage, mm. but. Uh, photos and it, it's wild seeing all the broken chairs and tables and you know all these people doing 70s garb like looking befuddled at, at, at the aftermath of you know <laughs> this show where Lux had thrown up on stage and people were dancing on top of things and yeah it's great and you know just hearing Jim and Ian kind of rap about how much this band meant to them and why beyond just the energy and the outrageousness of them you know I won't give away the whole interview but Ian tells a great story about taking his mom to see the cramps in the 90s or early 2000s before she passed and uh 
she enjoyed it. And Ian talking to Lux afterwards and Lux being like, oh my God, you're here. You know, it, it means a lot that you came, you know, you, your music, blah, blah. And Ian was for once at a loss for words. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the one time in his life. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I'm so glad that this came out. And the doc itself, like I said, is almost worth the price of admission just because it goes into the politics of the times, a lot about Reagan, a lot about what happened to social programs when he came into office. It goes into Mm. the SF punk scene. It goes into all kinds of things, much less the fact that San Francisco around that time, the impetus for the punk scene was sounds just, which I guess is just has to be one of the main ingredients in any of the stories of a city's punk scene for DC, for New York, and apparently San Francisco, and as well as a bunch of places in England, et cetera, the city was kind of bombed out and kind of uh, really in, in disrepair and kind of a mess and dangerous, et cetera. And that's what the place and the areas and the spaces that, you know, punks reclaimed and these artists and cultural figures changed and and spawn, spawned and spored. So, yeah. Anyhow. So who put that out? Who put out that Blu-ray? So the Cramps and Mutants, the Napa State Tapes is put out by something called Grasshopper Films. Okay. And, and they talk a lot about Target Video, which originally it came out on, and Mark Pauline, and uh, I forget who the other main Target person is, but they're interviewed on there as well. So really, really nice package. And that, as they say, is all she wrote, folks, for my picks. You know that we never set up top what record we were talking about? Oh, that's so funny. See? <laughs> we're out of practice. That's just realized that, yeah. Well, we'll do it now. Yeah. What are we what the hell are we talking about, Jeff? What are we talking about? <laughs> it's about time that we got to that question. Yeah, right. We are talking about Discord number seventy-seven. We're talking about the Jawbox Jackpot Plus Motorist seven inch single. With a big hole in the middle of it, which is one of my you favorite formats. I love big holes. Oh, oh boy! <laughs> and uh, I've noticed that it's billed that way, jackpot plus slash motorist, which is odd because I always think we'll we'll get to why and all that, but I always would think of this as motorist, and jackpot plus is is such a B side thing to me versus motorist, so. But we'll get into it. Yeah, I mean, I I, I got gotcha, you, but it's it's uh, very clearly listed in every place you could find it that <laughs> they call it Jackpot Plus, and it also is although some were mislabeled, where they they messed up the labeling on the sides. Uh-huh. Mine is is correct, but it clearly says Side A Jackpot Plus. Oh yeah, and very clearly says Side <laughs> B Motorist. So um, I am going to continue calling it as they called it yeah although i know what you're getting at and we'll certainly discuss that but of course yeah yeah well now you know we've we've talked about how much we miss each other jeff we talked about uh yes uh, what we've been checking out caught up a little bit which was was highly in order you know it would be weird not to mention any of that so i said i I didn't want to like come off like too self-important but i did I did co-host this podcast for two and a half years. I mean, that is like the lifespan of Minor Threat. <laughs> so I yeah. figured maybe a little yeah. of that was okay to do. But but no, it was it now. was called for, and 
Yeah. You hold the longest surviving uh, co-host seat on uh, end on end for sure by a long it's, shot. It's going to be hard to break. Yeah. It's going to oh, be hard yeah. to break there. Especially since, you know, I do plan on doing episodes here and there anyway. So, yeah, absolutely. All right. So with that, I think, you know what time it is. It's time to blow the dust off of the old history book you got there. Yes, yeah. for sure. Um, well, do you want to just, uh, before we do that, do, do you want to talk about like your history with this record? Like, or, we, do we could. Do I, we do I, that after the history? I don't remember I, how this I, goes. I feel I'm like still... we, yeah, I feel like we tend to afterwards, but we could do it either way. I'm open. Okay. All right, cool. I, so let's get to it. Uh, this yeah. is, I'm back in the driver's seat. It's been a while. Let's see how out of practice I am. All right. Don't so crash this, the car. I whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> well, some people might like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is the uh, so this is the fifth and penultimate Jawbox release on Discord, uh, following the first seven inch, which was Discord forty five and a half, Grip, which was fifty two, the Tongue seven inch, which was sixty one, and Novelty, which was sixty nine. Uh, there is one more Discord release after this, which is going to be coming up incredibly soon. <laughs> Um, so a lot of this information, I got to give credit where I get my sources from. This comes from a book by Eric Grubbs called Post, a look at the influence of post-hardcore, 1985 to 2007. It's sort of set up like, uh, what was the uh, the Azerod book? Oh, it's escaping me. Our Band Could Our Be Your Life. Be, yeah. Right, where there was different chapters on each, on each band. I know Jawbreaker has one, um, and Jawbox has one, and it has a lot of kind of info is about this i How think i never even heard of this book that's wild well now you have see <laughs> so it's it's you know it's interesting because i think that this record you know it's just a two song seven inch it's over in five minutes it's really a very important focal point for this band it comes immediately after a big story in the band that i'm about to get to and immediately after it comes possibly the most major big story in the band's career. And by major, I do mean major, <laughs> you know, if you had to label such thing. So yes, major is a word I would certainly use to describe the story that comes after this record. So the last we saw of Drawbox was the novelty LP, which came out in May of 1992. And, you know, we could just title this history, you know, changing of the guard on the drum throne here. Yeah. Um, second, so, second big change in uh, lineup. Yes, and and certainly uh, the introduction of Bill Barbo as a second guitarist. You know, Bill wasn't replacing anybody; he was an addition. Certainly, had a big impact on the band's sound, guitar wise, vocal wise, and everything. Um, you know, now we have an actual replacement situation, replacing mm -hmm. one very good drummer for another drummer who is excellent, and I think really change the sound even more than the addition, the addition of, of Bill Barbeau. Not necessarily on this record though, but we'll, we'll get to that. So drummer Adam Wade was um, uncomfortable touring around this time. He talks about it. And there was as, as much as Jawbox was kicking on all cylinders musically and creatively and playing great and putting out great records, you know, we had sort of a uh, Fleetwood Mac Esque um, dynamic going on inside the band at this time 
I do apologize if this is a repeat of stuff that was said on the Shutter to Think interview. As Brian said, I have listened to every single second of every <laughs> podcast released, except I am halfway through the Shutter to Think Hit Liquor episode, and obviously the Sutra episode isn't even out yet um, as we're as we're recording this. So, although I doubt anything on the Sutra episode <laughs> is going to come into play impact, here. Yeah. So, but this is part of the story. We're talking about this record now from the Jawbox perspective. Sure. Not the Shutter to Think perspective, so we need to we need to do this anyway. All right, <laughs> we need to. So <laughs> it was it was an uncomfortable situation, and there was low morale in the band because of this. I mean, you know, we think of Jay, the interviews that you've done, which excellent. I mean, he, I think he was on the novelty episode, and I just love listening to him. But you know, he was described by some people at that time as being pretty erratic in his behavior. You know, I mean, I can't even imagine being in this situation. You know, he forms this band with his girlfriend, with Kim Coletta, and they break up as a couple. And that's one thing to continue in a band with your ex, but then your ex starts a relationship with the other guitarist in the band. And, you know, for Adam, for Adam, yeah, right. Things are getting Jerry Springer. It is, you know. Well, I mean, you know, and and Adam Wade even mentioned how it was it was an odd thing to be in a hotel and they toured and, you know, you know Jay and Jay and Kim, you know, share a bed naturally, their boyfriend and girlfriend, and then this next tour now, Kim and Bill are sharing a bed, and it's just created a lot of uncomfortable feelings for Wade. And you know, in early '92, Drawbox and Shudder to think of touring together. And Wade finds himself hanging out a lot more with the Shutter to Think guys than his own bandmates. Um, there was one show, I think it may have been in Chicago, where Jay and Adam almost came to blows at some point. And after the fight, you know, Adam basically said to Jay, confronted him, and basically said, you know, I didn't do anything here. You're angry. You're misdirecting your anger at me. And, you know, and that's not fair. And you have you have stuff that you need need to deal with here. Um, and it was actually Craig Wedren who planted the seed in Wade's ear that maybe he really should be playing with another band. And specifically, you should be playing in my band, because at this point, uh, Mike Russell had already announced his intention to leave the band at the end of that tour. So and then Adam shared a bed with him. No, I'm not going to put that. <laughs> OK, so um, I don't even want to know. So so musically as well. Wade was a little unhappy. Um, you know, I would definitely not use this term to describe Jawbox at all. But you know, in in this uh, in this book, he does basically say he didn't want to be in a band that was sort of like he he said Fugazi clone. That's the quote in this. You know, oh, wow. a band that was Fugazi. Shouldn't have, I don't think I don't that, hear but that I, at all. Yeah, I don't hear it. But I think that what he was certainly getting at is that comparing the two bands, right? It's interesting. It's really. This is a great companion episode with the Shutter to Think episode because there's both bands, even mm-hmm. though Jawbox still has the split with Tar coming up, this is like the last full Discord release, new songs, you know, um, not, you know, we're going to cover your song, we're going to cover our song, which is what the Tar 7 inches. And then both bands leave from here and both go to major labels, right? After this, the only two bands in Discord history that go to major labels. And, you know, you have Adam Wade jumping from one band to another band. And so these two records in many ways are like, you know, there's this symbiotic relationship uh, between these two bands at this time and really these two records. You know, but if you compare the bands, 
Jawbox, you know, in Jay's interview with you, he makes no secret about the fact that, you know, he's drawing very specific influences and using them in the context of Jawbox. I mean, with novelty, you know, the helmet influence was very obvious. You know, he addressed that directly at the mm-hmm. in the interview you did with him. I think he talked about, you know, Naked Ray Gun, a lot of those Chicago bands of his time. Mm-hmm. You know, Jawbox were a big band in the post-hardcore world of the early 90s. They were and are a fantastic band. I love Drawbox. Easily one of my favorite Discord bands. And you can hear their DC influence, but they don't necessarily, if you heard anything from this point forward, you wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, that's a Discord band or a DC band, since they do draw from so many influences. Yes. Yes, absolutely. They And they do. And admittedly so. We're a shudder to think we're doing something completely unique mm-hmm. i mean what shutter to think was doing was something that was just so outside of like what any other band was doing and adam wade described that what they were doing is being beautiful and i think that at that point in his musical journey he was yearning more for something like that than what he was doing you know mm-hmm. and so leaving the band made him a much happier person but from Drawbox's point of view, I'm a better drummer too. Yeah. Yeah. I think both bands needed what they got at this time, to be honest with you, you know, although I love Mike Russell's drumming on the, on yeah, the Shutter to Think record. Sure. So this is no, you know, from Drawbox's point of view though, they were upset. You know, Kim Coletta especially is described as being extremely angry about Wade's departure that here they just put out this new record novelty, this great record. It's getting a lot of press, selling a lot of copies. And now they don't have a drummer anymore, right? Well, enter drummer Zach Barocas, who celebrates a birthday today, as you and I are recording this. It is August 17th, 2023, and uh, Zach's birthday is today. And as we learned, Jeff Nelson's birthday is also today. Right. Uh, so happy birthday to those guys. <laughs> so um, Zach was originally from Rochester, New York. And had moved to D.C. at some point, and the band didn't need to look very far to find him because he was their housemate. Zach was not playing in a band at the time. He was studying literature at a local community college and was working at a bookstore. And it was right place, right time for him, although Barbeau insists that he didn't get the gig because of the living situation, but because, and this is a great quote, he is a wizard of a drummer. Hmm. <laughs> which yeah he is and um, you know zach was already a fan of drawbox and actually preferred the earlier stuff like the first seven inch in grip huh. over novelty he had grown up a drummer which i think is obvious to anybody who's listened to zach's drumming knows that he uh clearly was studied you know a studied musician and drew his influences from everywhere. Uh, he talks about, you know, being into, you know, the funk drummers, like being a big fan of the meters. Uh, he talks about being into like world beat drummers. He talks about Manu Kashi, who I'm familiar with because, uh, and I'm sure I didn't say his name right, but, yeah, I was gonna say. Uh, but I, but I know that he was a drummer for Peter Gabriel uh, for many years, especially when Peter Gabriel was sort of getting into, into a lot of world music things. He talks about Elvin Jones and he talks about punk drummers. He talks about Peter Moffat, who, of course, we've mentioned, you know, great, but incredible drummer from 
you know, latter day government issue and wool and burning airlines. And he also mentions a drummer that I loved hearing him say because he's a great punk rock drummer, but is rarely mentioned when you hear people talk about their drumming influences. And that's Adam Fowler from Drawbreaker. Mm. So he was a big fan of his drumming. Yeah. It's a, I, and I always felt like his drumming on record never captured the majesty and intensity of what he would do live. Because live, he was just such a powerhouse. It sounds good on record, but never sounded as big as he sounded live. Yeah. You know, and it just hearing him mention him as an influence in this book, you know, brought me back to seeing Drawbreaker in, in early days, like around the time when Chesterfield King came out or mm. Bivouac came out. And, you know, I guess as time went on, they were more Drawbreaker, which has always been the same three guys, but really thought of as sort of, you know, being Blake Blake's band and these other two guys. But back then, there was a little more equality between mm-hmm. the three members and how people perceived of the band. Uh, you know, Chris always had a microphone and did a lot of the between song banter, you know, and Adam was really a standout player in that band. You know, he wasn't just like Blake Strummer, you know, he's the guy. Yeah. Like he was he was a, a focal point of that band back then. It, it kind of reminded me of that. So I can't pinpoint exactly when Zach's first show was. But I will tell you that the first, this is when I'm going to interject my own personal history a little bit, but I'll tell you that the first time I saw Jawbox was October 17th, 1992 at the University of Connecticut in Stores, Connecticut. And they played with Super Chunk and Velocity Girl and Zach was playing drums. That had to have been one of his first shows. I'm not saying it was his first show ever, but it had to have been very, very early on. Yeah. And just a quick story is that I went to that show uh, with my friend, Phil, who worked for Dutch East India Trading, and uh, his boss over there, his name was uh, Camille Ciara, who earlier that year had founded Grass Records, which was like a subsidiary of Dutch East. And right out of the gate, you know, she put out a lot of a lot of good stuff. Uh, Brainiac, you know, Toadies, the band who, you know. Mm-hmm. Did you want to die? That, that yeah. huge, they had a huge, they started on grass records. Uh, Mousetrap, Edsel put out a seven inch mm-hmm. on grass, uh, Sunbrain. But at that time, she was working on a Frank Sinatra tribute comp that I think we've mentioned on the show yeah. before called Chairman of the Board. And, you know, Sinatra, by the way, still alive at this time. He didn't die until 98. Mm-hmm. Um, and although I am not a huge fan of the comp, to be honest, there's a lot of really good bands on there, including quite a few Discord and Discord-adjacent bands. I mean, Girls Against Boys, Down by Law, Severin is on there, um, Alloy is on there, old guest of the show, Vic Bondi. Um, but Jawbox is also on that comp, doing a cover of Got You Under My Skin. And I remember before the show, Phil and I going to some downstairs lounge area with Jay and Kim, and Camille is talking to them about working out some details regarding their contribution to this comp. Mm. And like, I hadn't even been going to shows for a year yet. And like Phil and I are just like sitting there, like not saying a word, just watching this like little meeting going on. And like, it was like being in the presence of royalty, yeah. you know, like watching this conversation. And what, so what, what yeah. date did you say that was? That show was October 17th, 1992. So that's just uh, a couple days after this record is recorded. You're reading my mind, my friend. (laughs) 
These two tracks were recorded October 12th and 13th, 1992. Not even one week before that show that I saw them at. And I know for a fact that they played these two songs because I snagged the set list that mm. I had hanging on my college dorm wall for a while. And I know that both of these songs uh, were played then. I remember also Cruel Swing was also played um, at that show. That didn't make an appearance until For Your Own Special Sweetheart actually came out. Uh, but I remember being blown away by that song. You know, if there was any doubt about Zach as a drummer, right. Cruel Swing is like, you know, the song to listen to. But so these songs were recorded October 12th and 13th, 92 in Inner Ear, produced by Ian McKay and Jawbox, engineered by Don Ziantara. Zach is credited on the seven inch seven inches El Hefe. <laughs> Hefe, yeah. El Hefe. And he did use pseudonyms on some of these early releases after he joined Jawbox. Also in '93 um, was a split seven inch with Cracker Bash. Yeah. That came I just out saw on that, which Simple Machines. I never got that. Did you ever hear that? Um, I don't have that, but the song that's on there is not on any album. It's called Falk. And it's, you know, it is on, uh, I think some of the, the odds, odds and, and ends. Yeah. yeah. But he's, he's Evan Stubetsky on that seven mm-hmm. inch. And then of course there is uh on the split seven inch with Edsel that came out with DeSoto, which is the first appearance of arguably their best known song, Savory. Mm. Uh, and he is uh Jim Shorts. Jim, oh, J-I-M God. Shorts, <laughs> S-C-H-O-R-T-Z. Oh, it's like a Mo. From the Simpsons. Yeah. Joke. yeah. Hey, is. we got a shorts here. Jim Shorts. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so uh, the seven inch was released in February of 1993. So I think I think this is probably Discord's first release of 1993. Interesting. Um, because In on the Kill Taker did not come out until like no. June. Yeah. Until yeah. the middle of the year. So earlier catalog number for In on the Kill Taker, but I think I think this is the first record by discord in 1993 oh damn okay so which makes sense release date wise or how after it was recorded because yeah in the wikipedia it's it's listed under 92 but it makes sense that it would actually be right at the beginning of 93 if it was recorded at the end of 92 yeah yeah i i think and are you you may want to go back and look at wikipedia and see if you're not looking at the recording dates as opposed to the release dates. In any case, uh, the seven inch was Plus, remastered. I just uh, on the master list of Discord releases. It does say ninety three there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. See, it's it's throwing me off. I I never. I'm not gonna put this in. I never do these episodes out of order. And having uh, not recorded the suture one yet, I was. The suture is still under ninety two, right? Yeah, it is. It's okay. the last one listed in. So you haven't even recorded the suture episode yet. No, Sunday. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thank you for accommodating me then. So yeah. the record was remastered and reissued in May of 2011. Uh, it's not the one that I have. Uh, so the seven inch? I, I don't have the reissue. Uh, the one that I have is the original one that came out in 93. I'm surprised. But I'm saying, I'm saying Discord did reissue this in 2011. Yeah. I'm surprised they don't usually. Maybe I'm wrong. I I was under the impression that they would remaster the LPs, but didn't really do that to the seven inches so much. That's yeah, cool. Well, in this case, in this case, they did. Yeah. So I did find a couple of reviews, but honestly, none of them really imp- 
impress me that much. Mm. <laughs> so I'm not going to read them. Um, I did find a writing that I want to get to, but it's specifically about the song Motorist. So I'm <laughs> going to hold that in my back pocket until we oh. drop the needle on that. Ah, All right. Bastard. Okay. But thanks to Scott for finding that article on loudersound.com, which he mentioned on the Hit Liquor episode, the uh, 10 best singles released by Discord yeah, from yeah, yeah. 85 to 2002 right. by Paul Brannigan. Uh, he did go through the list. Jackpot Plus was number six on that list. Just one below hit liquor. So I figured I would read that. Okay. Um, one of only two Discord bands to depart the label for a major in the wake of the panicked AR mind sweep that occurred post Nevermind, the other being Shudder to Think. Jawbox's farewell to Discord was this thoughtful, nuanced double hit of emotive alt rock. Both Motorist and Jackpot Plus were recorded for the Quartet's Atlantic debut, For Your Own Special Sweetheart. But these versions eclipse their later incarnations. Something to discuss in a few <laughs> minutes. <laughs> Something to discuss. All right. So I think we'll leave it there yeah. and we will leave the major story coming out of this record <laughs> for uh, the final a future the final, episode, the uh, a very near future episode, from, <laughs> yeah, what exactly. I, from what I understand. So, uh, so what's your history with this one? Uh, to be honest, nothing i mean not nothing i was aware of it being released and i think i would i must have still been living in a group home with a band at the time so at least one if not two of them, my roommates had bought it so i didn't feel the need to or have the money to i was very tight with money since uh i was touring at the time and was playing a lot so my jobs were uh, just to to pay for my little closet of a room in my house <laughs> and uh so yeah it took a lot for me to actually buy a record i had to really want it and know that my housemates weren't going to have it or if it was a band i absolutely had to have and being a two song thing too that was a major sticking point for me back then <laughs> and you know as a young uh idealistic punk it didn't seem punk to me but i was aware of it when it came out and I liked it, but it, it it was in the flow of me being super busy with my own music, with a lot going on uh, in town, in Boulder, Colorado, as well as uh, just ingesting all types of music at that point. And honestly, probably exploring a lot of musics outside of the punk subgenre, you know, as a young person often does once the initial blush of first love starts to uh, fade just a little in the punk scene and you want to dig a little deeper than just every single punk record that's out there. And this, you know, for my own uh, emission of lack of foresight, you know, this this isn't just your typical punk record. I should have paid more attention. So, yeah, you know, it kind of flew under the radar for me. I was aware of it coming out, but... And I might, I know I saw them around this point, but I think my band at the time opened for them previous to this for the Savory, or not for Micah. I always get Savory mixed up with uh, novelty. Novelty. Yeah. No, all these one words. <laughs> yeah. It was for the novelty record. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, this one, I still really liked the band, but I was like, okay, this is just a little taster until the next record comes out and that's how i took it 
So unfortunately, for my own sake, I didn't pay as much attention as I should have. And I liked it okay, but I didn't buy it. So I didn't listen to it, especially other than probably it it probably flew on a mixtape with like 57 other songs yeah. by other bands. <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. I gotcha. Well, for me, I mean, this was exciting because this was the first new Drawbox record I remember coming out after already being a fan. And obviously that experience of having just, you know, sat in the room with them and like, oh, they're just yeah. normal people and, you know, seeing these songs on just the set a month list. or two ago before yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just uh, right. Well, yeah, about four months before. And just, you know, knowing that set list that I would stare at my wall and knowing those two songs weren't on any of these other albums that I had, you know, because I recognized all the songs. But I remember FF equals six, six was they were incorporating mm. these songs into the set list before that record, before special sweetheart came out so uh that was kind of exciting just having these songs now and being like wow like i i sort of met these guys and like you know just being a young you know whatever it was like 19 years old so that was a lot of a lot of fun yeah i mean i loved it and then of course you know they would go on and and redo these songs for that album so this does sort of act like a little a tease like a pre-lp yeah. teaser in a sense An even appetizer. though even though, right, yeah, an appetizer, even though uh, they are different recordings and, you know, have different production values and all that mm -hmm. stuff. And you'll you'll talk about more about that. I think you're in a better position to talk about that tonight than me. So. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's hard. It's hard to have so much history with something like this coming out in the midst of, you know, the the barrage of underground music at the time, as well as like I said, being just a, a single, you know, it can make an impact, but there's not a lot of singles that come out that, that just change your life, you know, and this was one that didn't, it did, I didn't dislike it, but, you know, we'll get into our thoughts on the actual songs in just sure. a second. Yeah. All right. Why don't, why don't we, so, why don't we, uh, yeah, why don't we get out the 45 adapters? <laughs> I know. I don't have the yellow ones. I miss those. The little plastic. Oh, the ones that actually stick in the record? Yep. yep oh, yep. those were such pains in the asses. I know. And they, no. they sometimes would damage your record, too. Yeah. I like the ones that you just stick on the spindle and then you... Yeah. Yep. Just easier that way. Yep. So let's do it. All right.
So here we are. We dropped the needle weirdly to me on Jackpot Plus. Do you, do you want to talk about some overall? Oh, yeah. Thoughts yeah, about yeah, this yeah. record before we get into the oh, nitty gritties? So we're switching positions now. Yeah. I usually uh, have to remind my co host <laughs> to do the overall. Yeah. I mean, the only overall thing I could mention is just for me, as usual, the first, my first impression is always just the sonic landscape which meaning just the production the the overall sound and how it hits you and i'm trying to put my finger on it i think it sounds good but it also sounds small like so i don't know if just if it's a mastering issue or what but the tones are pretty much there but they're they sound kind of muted especially compared to the album that comes out but even amongst themselves like if you listen to like i did i've listened to a few different versions of the of this record itself or this seven inch and if you listen to someone that just plays the seven inch like on youtube like the original seven inch it sounds so much quieter and and meshed together than if you listen to like the remastered whatever which i don't own the a copy of either but I've been listening mostly on Apple Music, which has, I believe, the remaster and has, you know, nice clean production. I'm not nice clean boosted production of it. That's the main thing, is is it sounds especially compared to the last two things they put out, it sounds quieter just in the overall vibe. Like I feel like I keep wanting to turn it up even if it's loud. Mm-hmm. You always paid more attention to that stuff than I did. <laughs> but I know what you're saying. Uh-huh. Now I don't have the remastered reissue of this and i've never heard it mm. so i can't compare it but i will tell you that on this i i agree with you and to me it's the guitars mm-hmm. the guitars sometimes sound like they're not even there like they're mixed too low or something you know like the bass sounds great as always oh definitely the bass uh, like know. pops out yeah yeah always but but it's almost like the uh it almost sounds like the guitars are underwater sometimes so i yeah i don't disagree with you about that yeah and i mean any other overall thoughts for me would be just that both of these songs are i would say very different i think it's it's safe to say than anything that's come out before it's still recognizable who the band is there's no question that's jawbox to me but they're exploring a couple different kind of in, in the same vein as the shutter seven inch that we just covered a couple episodes ago same thing, kind of same band. Notice you can tell who it is, but they're trying something completely further out out of the box than what they have previously on both songs. So mm-hmm. that's that's my overall first impressions. What about you? Yeah, I mean, overall thoughts is this accentuates an idea that I feel like I've had for a while, and that is is that novelty in a way is almost like a bit of a one off in the band's catalog. Unfortunately um, to me, man. <laughs> well, yeah, per- perhaps. But, <laughs> you know, the more helmet or dare I say industrial, in quotes, elements to that album, you know, are not found on these songs at all. And if anything, this record feels to me like it could have come directly after the tongue 7-inch, you yeah. know, skipping oh, yeah. novelty altogether. And while Zach's drumming, I mentioned, you know, mentioned briefly before, while Zach's drumming is very solid on these songs, it's not the busy, frenetic, syncopated style that we know him for and that we'll see on later 
releases, you know, for sure. Perhaps these songs were already, I don't know where in the history these songs were written. Maybe they were already written, you know, or maybe the new guy just wasn't ready to assert himself in that way just yet. I mean, he certainly would. I think his drumming in many ways Mm -hmm. defines the sound of many of their later songs, you know, but I think what you do have are two really good songs that got a lot of play in the set list. I mean, both songs... Yeah, both songs are in the are in the set list in the reunion era. Mm-hmm. Both songs are on that 2019 live at, in Chicago. And, you know, uh, I was curious, uh, according to Setlist FM, you know, which doesn't by any means have every single set list drawbacks ever had. But according to that, this motorist is actually the second most played song in Drawbox's history after Savory. So the mm-hmm. band themselves obviously, you know, like this one. And as you said, I agree that it shows two different sides to the band. You know, one song is sort of a faster, more energetic song. And the other one is a little more, you know, mid tempo and subtle. And so, um, but you know, it's still really heavy though. Oh, sure. For sure. But just definitely two different styles of the band. Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, why don't we talk about the specific songs a little bit? Side A, which I think is mislabeled. (laughs) <laughs> but but it's, yet it's not because I could show you again. It clearly says it clearly says side A jackpot plus. So <laughs> it must be a manufacturing error on every <laughs> single pressing of it. Um, yeah, jackpot plus. This song is a hundred percent a grower for me. Now I like it. I still don't love it. It's one of those songs that feels kind of Frankenstein to me. It feels like a song that was parts from a bunch of songs that they just kind of sewed together because they didn't know what to do next after each part. It doesn't really flow so much to me. And that's okay. It works. And certain parts of it really pop out. And then other parts kind of feel like, you know, uh, stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor in future Jawbox records unexplored avenues for good reason in my mind so yeah i mean i think it's i think it's a deep cut and it's an okay deep cut it feels to me like a song that should be a comp song if if this was a song in my band i would put it on a compilation and maybe a good compilation but still it wouldn't be something i would put on the album and if i did sequence wise which i'm all about sequence too is it would be deep in the middle of side two where you need something to just kind of break things up a little bit or keep things going but it's not going to be a it's not going to be one of those ones that people yell for so maybe i'm wrong i mean i mean to me like saying this should be a contract or buried in the middle of side two (laughs) is like the best (laughs) euphemism for i don't think this song is that great that i've ever heard (laughs) (laughs) i I don't hate it I i don't skip it in the record so it, it's got that going for it. It's not something that I'm like, oh, this is a completely failed endeavor. But when I play this and then I hear Motorist, it's just way too stark a contrast for me. Okay. Motorist is just, which we'll get into, but it, it fires on all cylinders yeah. every second of it. Whereas this feels, there's there's parts that I'm glad that it gets through and gets to the next part. Yeah, I mean, it, 
it seems to fly by this song to me. You know, it's 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 a pretty it's a pretty quick song. I think it's a pretty quick song. What is it? Yeah, it's two no. minutes forty seconds. Okay. Yeah, it's not even three minutes long. It's much, much shorter <laughs> than motorist. I think I like it more than you. It's it's definitely not a deep cut because it is side A and they do play it all the time. So it's not a deep cut. It's in your head you want it to be a deep cut. Yeah, you just don't like yeah. the song that much, and that's fair. That's fine. Yeah. Um, I like I think it's good. I, I don't think it's one of the great drawbox songs of all time. I think it's good. I like that it's kind of got a, a bit of a faster pace to it. I mean, it's not a fast song, but relative to Drawbox songs, I, I think yeah, it's a little faster. Yeah, sure. It almost sounds like a song that could have been on the first seven inch. Mm. Yeah, in well, and that or grip that you know? that goes to goes to my argument that it feels like a young band song, in the sense that it feels like a band, like a song you would write when you're still trying to figure out what your direction is. Yeah, you know, but. It's 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 got a lot of energy. It's got a driving rhythm. It's really propelled, I think, by Kim's, you know, yeah. always amazing sounding bass. I mean, what she's playing is pretty simple, but it's effective. It's yeah. catchy. And the guitars here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote down, I mean, she's the MVP on this song and everyone else is just kind of hanging on to what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Not that everyone's not doing cool stuff, especially uh, Zach. Like the, this rhythm section and the vocals are what stand out on this song. The guitars don't, which is no. weird for me because I always think of them as a really guitar band, but the guitars just don't interest me that much on this one. Too herky jerky, I guess. I I don't think they're doing a whole lot. Um, yeah, I feel like yeah. they're they're used more for effect. They're definitely leaving the heavy lifting of the song to Kim. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guitars drop out almost completely uh, during the verses, mm-hmm. you know, but I think the chorus is great. I think it's got that, that cool repetitive riff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guitars add kind of a swirling effect to that. And, you know, Jay is really singing with, you know, some urgency when he sings the chorus, the someday I part. What's weird. Cause I totally changed my opinion. At first I'd written down that that was my favorite vocal part. And then after hearing the song a bunch, that became one of my least favorite vocal parts. Well, I bet I know what your favorite vocal part is. Oh, yeah? What? I do. I, I bet I do. <laughs> well, um, so moving along in the song a little bit, I'll say that, you know, there is a change in feel during that instrumental part as we're nearing the end mm-hmm. of the song. You know, it keeps the face, but it's got a different feel. And the guitar kind of lets me down in this section because it hints that it's about to do something exciting. It hints like I'm about to play a solo, but it doesn't actually ever yeah. do that. It doesn't and explode or anything. It yeah. doesn't explode. And and it doesn't matter because Kim's baseline is far more interesting anyway. Mm-hmm. But there is that little section between that instrumental bridge and that final chorus. There's like a key change. Yeah. And Jay sings about as ferociously as he has in a very long time or would. And my guess is that that little break where he is like basically screaming is your favorite vocal part of the song. I mean, that, yes, I I guess so. That's probably my favorite. And I also do like the all nerve and no brain section, Mm -hmm. but the verses, the way that he sings for some reason, and maybe it's because we've got a station at my work one of our stations they play all the time is a 90s hits kind of station which actually plays some sunny day and some afghan wigs and some interesting stuff occasionally but plays a lot of stuff like toadies which is okay too but whatever a lot of kind of middling 90s indie rock and 
bands like that band live or something. And I don't know, for some reason, the verses, I, I really like the lyrics, but the, the sound of the singing and even the playing a little bit makes me think of 90s indie rock, like light indie rock as opposed to uh, the rest of the song. Like it, it kind of it feels of its time. Fair, fair. And then, you know, I like the very end of that song. Yeah, me you too. Know, there's the, uh, you know, there are the band accents and it's the first little hint of, you know, Zach doing something right, a little yeah. cool because he sort of have, you know, it's still not full blown Zach. No. But he he is playing those cool little fills in between the accents just at the end of the song. And I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's heavy at the end. It's cool. Which I guess is a good place to, to say how, I guess this is a thing I sh- could have said in the intro or the first part of this discussion where you asked about overall. The one unifying thing I see between the two songs is they both have this kind of desperate, somewhat sensual in a dark way and self-destructive, potentially addictive mm-hmm. uh, vibe to both songs. Both songs share that kind of energy in the lyrics. First song that could be ostensibly about gambling, which I don't think it is necessarily. Uh, you don't. On, what's that? You don't. Well, I mean, I think it 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 uses the not the illusion. What's the word? The uh, metaphor. Yeah, it uses the it uses the overt metaphor of gambling, but it feels like it's either it, it doesn't feel super clear, but it feels like it's either about love, about uh, sexuality, about view of women. You know, I, I I see these things all kind of swirling around within the lyrics. You know, the guy's cupping his hands around dice and blowing. Our sweet Dempsey is, who, whether it could be man or woman. Oh, his, yeah, breathes his freaking trust, all uh, nerve and no brain. It it seems like it's a, a, a kind of a critique of of male view of relationship in some ways, like especially that it's really weird that second verse with. I don't know if weird's the right word, but it's it's very evocative. The sweet baby sucking on a number. Sweet Dempsey gladly trips switch after switch. He can feel himself drain out through his fingertips. If that's not sexual sounding, I don't know what is. It 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 and yes. Then, and then uneasy union, the conception of a near miss. Keep dropping it in, cool on the machine. Dropping it in it, again, like it, the whole thing is just rife with sexual metaphor. And not in an ACDC way, in a, a, somewhat, uh, <laughs> a somewhat sophisticated and uh, self-critiquing way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in an ACDC way. The most obvious like, right. sexual <laughs> symbolism. Well, know. you know, so just take in the lyrics on a surface level, though, about gambling. And I don't doubt. I mean, listen, gambling is, is a classic metaphor for desire, for mm-hmm. greed for um you know uh using you know your 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 heart over your brain you know and things like that because everyone knows that gambling is not a good decision to make <laughs> yeah um you're not gonna be the one that beats the house whatever you're, you're not gonna be the one that beats the house and i want to get into you know but on a surface level it really is an excellent song and 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 commentary about gambling on the surface level and sure. listen I don't doubt that what you're saying is is correct and true, and I don't know if do you interview Jay for this episode? Yeah. Okay, so maybe he gets into that. And I know which I, this I haven't heard that for the readers or for the re- for the listeners to know. 
uh, that interview hasn't happened yet. So okay. any idiocy of, so, of, of grasping for ideas about the song so, is us without us knowing what Jay's about to say in the interview. Excellent. And I look forward to it. Yeah. Um, so certainly what you're saying could definitely be true where the uh, the gambling is being used as a metaphor, uh, you know, talking about romantic, sexuality, things like that. On the other hand, looking at it in reverse, the relationship that a gambler has to gambling could perhaps also be a sexual one in mm-hmm. their own head that way too. Right. And maybe it's the other way around. And he's using sexual metaphors to enhance the idea of what it's like to be an addictive gambler as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, right? sure. I mean, because um, the similarity to say uh porn, internet porn or something, same type of, you could write the same song. It would be a little even more on the nose per se, but uh, with the same kind of imagery and it would work. Yeah. Yeah. So it works both ways. So mm-hmm. my take on the lyrics in a more, maybe on a more surface level. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, is that I have known some people who were addictive gamblers you know sure. um yeah i lived it's, in it's vegas just, i have too <laughs> oh you well for sure you know yeah. i mean it's 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 sad and it's it's one of the worst addictions i mean it's a terrible oh, yeah. terrible addiction it, it, you it know if you families and relationships it, apart it, it does it, it, and in a way that you can't separate yourself from right like it's hard to do it's hard to imagine you know if you're if you're someone who is you know uh knows or friends or his family with say you know a junkie or something like that a heroin addict they're not sticking the heroin in your arm um it can certainly tear families apart but you can in theory separate yourself from that situation whereas if your spouse just gambled away your mortgage or your rent money you're stuck in a way you know that is impossible to unstick yourself i mean it's horrible it's horrible but he he you know he's Certainly plenty of references, like you said, uh, cupping sweaty hands around dice and giving them a blow before tumbling bones, which is slang for dice. And the song also talks about one of the dirty secrets of gamblers, especially those who are addicted. And that is the thrill of not just the win, but the thrill of the loss. And, And the thing that no addicted gambler will admit out loud is that while they're chasing the thrill of a big win, if they didn't also in some weird way love to lose they wouldn't do it and this is addressed that makes the wins that much more satisfying when they even the tiniest ones and that 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 that's true and in that especially that someday i line in the song really speaks to that it's almost about the thought of and the the getting nearness to more than the actual achievement of said uh victory and it's sung with such conviction. Someday I, yet it trails off with no satisfying conclusion. Someday I, what? Right? It's the fantasy of winning big, but it's never going to happen. And the gambler knows that. And it's it's the dream that he's addicted to, you know, and not the unrealistic chances of ever actually winning. Because if he did actually win, it's not like if he won big, his number one choice wouldn't be to just give it all back in that cool cold machine that's referenced at the end of the song. And he says it in lyrics, the lyric in love with the air around a hundred thousand bad throws, Mm -hmm. right? In love with the air around a hundred thousand bad throws. 
And so I really think that even if this song is a metaphor for everything you're saying, simply on its surface, I think it is a great set of lyrics just about gambling addiction, even just on a surface level. I would be so entertained to hear Steve Albini's take on this song. <laughs> hey, Steve Albini is no gambler. He's, Steve he's Elgambly a... is a poker player, which is... Wait, are you not, saying poker is not a gambling? Not in the same way that we're talking about in this song. In this song, we're talking about dice. We're talking about, you know, uh, slot machines. Uh, I don't think there's a reference to... Um, Cards. A, a, a big, a big. I don't think there's a reference to roulette wheel. The switches, picking a number could be like Kino, like that kind of game. But poker, while there is a while there is a um, an element of chance in the game, the better players are going to walk away with your money in the end. In the long run, the better players are going to win. There's no such thing as a good roulette player or a good slot machine player. There's no such thing. The yeah, house yeah. is always going to take all your money. Poker, you are not playing against the house. You're playing against other players. But isn't that a matter of degrees? I mean, it's I a matter, see what you're well, saying. Because... It's a matter of degree. If if chess is 100% skill and no luck, right? We agree right. that chess is a game that has no luck factor at all. Right. Pure, pure strategy. Unless, pure two, unless two novices play each other, sure. Even then, but, yeah. well, if they're just making <laughs> yeah. random moves, okay. Yeah. But in general, chess is a game of 100% sure. skill. Okay. Roulette is a game of 0% skill. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Poker is just enough. It's probably past the 50% mark. It's probably somewhere in the 60 to 70% sure. skill. Yeah, yeah. Skill. Okay. So while there is a luck factor, if it wasn't for that luck factor, the good players wouldn't be able to take money from the bad players because the bad players are going to win once in a while. If you take a good chess player and a bad chess player, and they play 100 games, the good player will win all 100 of them. Yeah, sure. If poker is played, the worst player will occasionally hit a hand against the better player. That hitting of the hand once in a while is what keeps the bad player in the game and not walk away from the table forever. Mm -hmm. The good player in the long run <laughs> will win. So... Poker is different. Steve Albini is a poker player oh, I who know. has a I, lot of skill and wins. Of course, there's skill so. involved, and not to take that away from him, but just, a, you know, I mean, sports betting, poker, uh, even, you know, like, uh, what was that movie? The the Sting, uh, the billiards, etc. It, it, it's all gambling. If, if there's money involved and there's play at hand, it, it's still, there's that addictive element to it. I would, but I, I think I would say poker is very different than the songs that he's talking about. <laughs> anyway, the defender, welcome to our poker podcast. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. And if it sounds like I know a little bit something about this, uh -huh. right. so, <laughs> you sound a little uh, a little connected to this subject. Uh, I, I played some poker in my time. Not in a mm -hmm. long time, but yeah. All right. And I will defend it as a game of skill all the time. Yeah, fair enough. And All right. You, you, I do, I, like I said, both of these songs, especially you know, this song has that no matter what the subject matter, the way it's written, the lyrics, there's a definite air of desperation in the lyrics and uh, it's effective lyrically, I think even more so than musically. So, yeah. 
I have more to say about the lyrics of both these songs and the music, to be honest with you, which is a rarity for me. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. This is a new Jeff, new era, 2.0. <laughs> All right. So we turn the record over and side B, A, 2 <laughs> is a motorist. Motorist. Yeah. I mean, as you said, it's the, one of their most played songs. And I think for good reason, besides Static, I feel like this song, when I think of Jawbox, this is one of the big songs I think of in the top three or five, at least. I would, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. I think this is a, uh, a top tier, uh, Jawbox song. Mm-hmm. It's a um, Jawbox. It is. Yes, it is. So this is the other side, you know, where you have something that's definitely slower, definitely more atmospheric, definitely one of these songs that I feel like musically has a relationship with the lyrics yeah because oh yeah yeah definitely. you know the lyrics are right the aftermath of a car crash and disorienting and certainly the song especially that opening 20 seconds or so oh you mean the uh yeah which is di- completely different on the album version the the lo-fi drum machine yeah. thing yeah the drum machine and just jay and everything just sounds like it's underwater yeah I mean, it's not, literally well, sounds like it's underwater yeah, it sounds like you're getting a snapshot with really muffled sound of him in his bedroom late at night, like quietly singing into his little four track with a drum machine going until it but burst into the actual uh, main part right. of the song. And and to me, that sort of goes along. I mean, we'll talk about the lyrics more later, but yeah. that sort of goes hand in hand with the lyrics of like, listen, you you've been in you've been in car accidents before, I'm assuming. Yeah. Right. And I have two, and I'm sure most people, unfortunately, have had that experience. And as soon as that impact happens, you know, there is several seconds, moments where you really are very disoriented. Oh, yeah. What just happened? What's going on? Am I okay? Like, you don't even know if you're okay. Yeah. Um, And then eventually things almost get quiet, even if it's loud around you. You know, that's always how it's shown in movies, right? When you see a car crash in a movie where there's an impact and there's almost like silence for a second or muffled silence. Well, for me, there's the silence as it's happening. Yeah. All of a sudden, everything gets quiet and and slows down time. And it's like right as or before impact. And then then it's still that kind of continuation. Then the, the real disorientation at first, it's just the almost akin to heightened uh, meditation experience which is probably your adrenaline your whole body going into near death mode of okay should we fire the D- the your <laughs> pineal dmt glands <laughs> right, to, right. to <laughs> yeah, or not yeah. yeah yeah totally and i feel like the production in the beginning of the song mimics that situation a little bit before fight the full band comes in and now you've sort of returned to the yeah. consciousness and are now going to deal with whatever just happened. You're probably grateful just to even, you know, be alive, you know, at that yeah. point. But, you know, I feel like this is definitely a song where they really thought about the building of, of it, you know, whereas the guitars don't seem to do a whole lot in jackpot plus they do a whole lot in yeah. motorist. They do a whole lot and they do a whole lot with maybe even less notes than they use in Jackpot Plus. Like the main riff is so minimal, but that's what's perfect about it because 
you take away the drums, you take away the bass, you take away the guitar. You can't take any piece of this away without it all falling apart. Whereas on uh, a lot of songs, like the guitar riff defines things or maybe the bass riff, whatever. But on this song, you can't take any second of any of it away without House of Cards coming down. That three note and then slightly shift of three note guitar thing that happens <laughs> is so dreamlike and evocative uh, over top of that pummeling groove that Kim and Zach lay down. And, yeah. and, it, and, and the way the guitars play that minimal riff for some just, reason. You're talking about just the, the little single note down, riffs down, in there, like, down, and, the, down, and the notes down. are slightly like there's some effect. There's like maybe a yeah, chorus effect. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Those, very effective. And, yeah. And the, the, that's part of the genius of the band, I feel like, when they when everything's working perfectly, is like on this song. And that riff kind of, to me, that part of the song works because it's like the guitars are almost playing like a early 80s post-punk type of riff over this more modern, like borderline noise rock, borderline industrial, borderline, like, I don't know what, just super heavy slow groove you know it's two different things going on at the same time all these different influences totally working over top of each other yeah but even though it you know we we talked about that very effective single note line you know the song also evolves into something where the guitars really begin to you know layer really well oh yeah you know, there's a lot of use of harmonics the tones go from quiet and sedate into chaotic and noisy. But it's arranged in a way that it's not Nirvana-esque of the quiet, no. loud part. It, right, right. You know? no, I know what you're talking about, yeah. I, which which is still like a trope that is used today in oh, like yeah. modern day emo, the type of emo that we probably don't listen to. Um, <laughs> but yeah, where you go from 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 that. No, it's it's done really, really well. And, and you know, one musical characteristic that's similar to Drawbox is sort of a relative simple but catchy chorus. Yeah. You know, when you get down to chorus time. Yeah. So it still has all these things floating around that are really interesting to listen to and really create like this very distinct atmosphere, I think. Atmosphere um, and even drama, right. you know, which which yeah. uh, sonically, like you said, really captures the lyrics. Everything's working full-on uh, seamlessly together. It's not like one of those songs where the sound of the music's, say someone like Highback Chairs, where the music's really chirpy and high-energy upbeat, but the lyrics are kind of dark or whatever. It's, it, it, this, everything is lockstep, but so layered that it's, you know, it works perfectly, I think. Yeah, definitely. They, and they know when to bring the hooks when they, when they need to. Right. And it, they utilize space like they're they're getting confident enough not to have to play every second of the song, mm -hmm. you know, the guitars or any of the instruments like the way Zach plays drums is very defined. And, you know, it starts to come out more on this song than I feel like on Jackpot Plus and that you can tell he's a hard hitter, even on, even just on this seven inch, which isn't recorded amazingly. You can tell mm -hmm. he's a hard hitter, but a very precise hitter where like the space in between his hits really are very purposeful and defined. Sure. It it feels like, you know, it's funny looking at the times of the songs, like I said, jackpot plus is less than three minutes, two minutes, 40 seconds. And that kind of what it feels like, right? It kind of uh -huh. feels like a short, sure. quick 
This song is three minutes and 18 seconds, which is not that long at all. But the song feels like there's a lot more in there. Yeah. Than three minutes and 18 seconds, right? They're making a lot of use of that time. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like this is really a key song, like you said, in the future, the, the pointing towards the future of where they're going, what kind of direction and what kind of elements they're going to use for their uh, recipe for the rest of their music. Without it being necessarily as crazy a time signature as things will get uh, occasionally. Just before we jump into the lyrics, which we definitely have to, uh, I was trying to put my finger on what the intro reminded me of. uh, And it reminds me a little bit of like some Guided by Voices and even the way it kicks into the the big part of the song too because both bands utilize this really super lo-fi recording uh, style mixed with you know big studio sound so you know that that kind of came to mind even in his like kind of incoherence of the way he sings the intro yeah no that that same idea reminded me of uh, I don't know what song it's it is but it's uh it's on your living all over me And there's a song where it sort of alternates between just everything sounding like it's underwater uh, and then coming out of that and exploding. And it kind of reminded me of that a little bit. So I could know the song I'm talking about. I do. And I I'm kicking myself because I can't throw it out there right now. But yeah, no, that makes sense. And that's less of a uh, J other J less of a mascus and more of a what's his name? Barlow. Barlow, yeah, idea because Barlow is in love with the lo-fi sound. Yes, um, yes. So yeah, I mean, this song's a powerhouse. When I think of seeing them, the two shows I saw last year, what is it? Almost two years ago now. This song is is the soundtrack. Like I hear, I hear this song when I think of seeing them live recently because it's just such a mammoth jam live, and not in a jamming way you know no, they don't go off for 10 minutes but just it's so fucking heavy and it feels like the whole the floorboards are moving when the song's on i have quite a bit to say uh, mm-hmm. about the lyrics but why don't you uh why don't you start off yeah i mean famously the song does reference just i think obliquely i don't think it's so overt and maybe i'm wrong we'll see in the interview uh jg ballard's uh crash you know, the eroticism, people who get turned on by car crashes. Uh, but I think that's, again, somewhat of a metaphor being used in the song. And again, of a song like this could, could be too oblique and not work or too artsy in delivery or the way it's written down. But I think it works. I, you know, especially even like you mentioned on the jackpot plus like even on even if you just took it face value without any layers underneath it it's there's some lines that are just super trying to think of a word other than evocative to use that are super the place you right there you you can see and feel what he's what he's saying in some of these lyrics like when he the way they're expressed you know glass everywhere and wheels still spinning free that's like such a, a chilling line mm. again i feel like both songs address this self-destructive urge and an eroticism as well but 
you know, I know you've got a lot to say about it, so I don't want to just keep going on my riffing. Why don't you uh, open it up with your thoughts? Yeah, well, I'm sure that now. Okay, so his last name is Ballard, not Ballard. That's what I've heard uh, learned folks on uh, other interviews say, so I'm going to assume. I used to always say Ballard, too. (laughs) Yeah, about. So, um, no, I did see uh, there was an interview, and I'm sorry, I really... I like having my references and giving credit where it's due since I'm not the one interviewing these people back in 1994, mm-hmm. but Kim does talk about Jay Robbins being a fan of that author. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering if it, if these lyrics are not a blend of two of his books. So you mentioned the book crash. Mm-hmm. So because you mentioned that I was going to save this for the end, but this is the place to say, put this in is a writing I found uh, from a book called Escape Philosophy, Journeys Beyond the Human Body by Roy Christopher. All right. Mm -hmm. So this passage opens chapter three of that book titled Machine Mechanical Reproduction. All right. So this is from from the opening of that chapter. I ordered the seven inch of Jawbox's 1993 single Motorist as soon as I knew it was available. The lyrics, even for a Jawbox song, were striking. Accidental maybe ponders Mm -hmm. J. Robbins. Restraints too frayed to withhold me. Paul Virilio once wrote that whenever we invent a new technology, we also invent a new kind of accident. We might never again invent a technology that is so prone to accidents as we have with the automobile. Hearing Jawbox play that song live again reminded me of the wreckage of artifacts piled up in my head around it. Over Zach Barocas's lurching beat, Kim Coletta's chugging bass, and his and Bill Barbeau's dual dueling guitar feedback, Robbins yells, when you examine the wreck, what did you see? Glass everywhere and wheels still spinning free. I remember immediately thinking of the 1973 Ballard novel, Crash. In the simplest of terms, Crash is about a group of people who fetishize car accidents. Most of them have been in actual accidents, but they also stage their own. They are sexually aroused by the impact as well as the aftermath, the energies, and the injuries. Though I hadn't read it at the time, I thought Robbins had. I found out recently that the song is actually about a car accident that happened in Chicago while Jawbox was on tour. While back in town during the last night of the band's 2019 summer reunion tour, Robbins told the story on stage at the Metro. And aside, he must be talking about the show that they made the live album for, uh-huh, uh-huh. Live at the Metro. And I did pull that out and put on the beginning of Motorist. And there is what what happens is they start playing the song and Bill Barbo interrupts the song and says, you know, Jay, we're in Chicago. I feel like you should say something about this song. It is a Chicago song. And then there's a pause and they start playing the song. So I'm thinking maybe Jay told that story and and they they cut it out out of the record. So I just want to bring that up. So um, in light of this new information, I've tried to rewire my interpretation of the song. In my head, Jawbox's motorist remains connected to Ballard's crash. And he goes on to compare some lyrics in the song to excerpts from the book. There's the line in the song, crack gauges carry messages for me, calls and responses you can't see. And Ballard writing, in front of me, the instrument panel had been buckled inwards, cracking, using the same word, crack, cracking the clock and speedometer dials. So that's an excerpt from that book that seems to support the idea uh, that this comes from the book Crash, given that Kim said in the interview that Jay was a fan of this author. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe you know they did experience a car crash, um, or witnessed a car crash 
on tour in Chicago at some point, and this, you know, he went back to his love for this book or whatever and incorporated the lyrics. Now, another book that Ballard wrote, and I haven't read this, so I'm not saying that this is original work, is a book he wrote the following year. I think Crash was 73, and this is 74, mm-hmm. called Concrete Island. And and just the synopsis of this book makes me want to makes yeah. me want to read this book. Um, but it's the story of a man who gets in a car crash and becomes stranded on the median strip in the middle of the highway and is basically stuck there on this island. It's surrounded by traffic, surrounded by people, but he can't get anyone to help him. And he basically learns to like survive by scavenging food and water from like cars passing by. And there's like two other people who are also stranded on this island with him. And he, so there were lyrics just based on that plot synopsis. There are lyrics that support that this book could also have been influenced because he talks about what would you risk to rescue me or drive on past, just turn your back because nothing is better than getting out fast and lyrics about no messages washed ashore with me. Right. That evokes images of being on an island. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of thinking that they witnessed this crash back in the early 90s or whatever. And he sort of incorporated these two books and created these lyrics out of them. And probably, you know, I'm sure they were swimming around in his head of what he remembered from the book. So I doubt he, you know, was trying to pick out specific lines from specific. Oh, let me go to chapter seven verse you know but yeah 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 i know i heard both of those books referenced before too and it totally makes sense and it makes sense even without any of that uh in that it it gives me the feeling of knowing somebody close to you that's out of control whether it's drugs whether it's poor life decisions whether it's jackpot plus gambling (laughs) <laughs> but someone who's careening out of control and either going from their perspective or you feeling guilty for not doing something by watching them say, just go on past, this is, you know, not worth getting involved in because it's, you know, such a dumpster fire type of situation or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't yeah. know how any, nobody ever made a movie out of Concrete Isle with a plot like that. Yeah. It seems like such a winning sure. idea yeah. for a film. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, I'm glad you read those uh, those quotes that says it as well, if not better than you or I could have uh, just directly. And there's one other line as well that I thought was really well uh, put. Again, with the glass, like uh, glass shards reflecting light so I can see. You know, for some reason, that image is just really cool. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, you know, the repetition of what would you risk to rescue me? The one couplet I don't necessarily know how it relates other than maybe in the scenario, like I said, of, you know, on an interpersonal level. But, you know, he also keeps saying, remember, you told me you you will go where you're meant to be. You know, all the rest of it kind of hangs together, ideally, with either the book reading and or just like I said, thinking of somebody as a car crash their life well i don't know let me let me throw that back at you for a second knowing what i do know about the general plot synopsis of concrete island you know that he's sort of stuck in this in this middle but he does sort of come to a lot of like self uh revelations while he's stuck you know on this Uh 
on this median in the middle of the highway. And, you know, he's saying, remember, you told me, you told me you will go meeting me where you're meant to be. Meaning you told me that I will end up where I've meant to be. This is my wreck. So let it be. So in yeah, a yeah. sense, maybe it's an acknowledgement of like kind of where he ended up is where he was meant to go to find himself or mm-hmm. whatever that may be. I don't know. I'm just talking shit, Brian. You know, I'm just. Uh-huh. No, I like that. And yeah, the more I look at these lyrics, like I could be totally wrong or, you know, it's a too easy of a thing to throw out there, but it feels like it's also could very easily be talking about someone with a drug addiction. You know, especially that, like, this is my wreck, let it be, you know, and I'm getting messages from things you don't understand because it's what's in my head from the drugs and the connections I'm making that others don't see. And, you know, what would you do to rescue me? Are you going to take your time to deal with all the bullshit that I've got going on and examining the wreck? What do you see? All this stuff, you know, but yeah, you know, it's like I said, it's oblique and just enough of a way to make it applicable to many situations. You know, we could put ourselves in just certain lines or not and could think of it just conceptually or just take it all in with the ride of the song and it works. <laughs> I didn't even think about the using the word ride of the song. As, uh, yeah, that's a good one. Motorist. Yeah, I mean, you know, Jawbox lyrics can sometimes be a little tough to right. crack. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't, I think that these are not as bad as a lot of, as a lot of no, other. I think they're, songs, I think you know? they're successful. So yeah. yeah. Talking about lyrics sometimes, it makes me think, uh, one of my favorite scenes ever in a movie. It's that scene in Annie Hall. You, you've seen that, right? Annie Hall. Yeah. But I'm, I don't know so which thing. It's, is- it's the scene where, where Woody Allen and Diane Keaton or whatever are on a movie line. And yeah. there's this guy behind him, this insufferable. Oh, uh, what's professor his name, who's right? talking about well, the 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 guy is like a like you know a teacher and he's telling his date blabbing on about like Marshall McLuhan, yeah. And yeah. Woody Allen's like this guy behind me doesn't know anything about Marshall McLuhan, and he goes over and he pulls Marshall McLuhan out. That's right, right. From behind yeah. and Marshall McLuhan goes up to the guy. He's like, I've been listening to you. He's like, you don't Actually, know anything about my work. How do you ever even become a teacher about anything? And I feel like I feel that way. Like sometimes talking about these lyrics, like Jay Robbins is like going to be like. Listen, I, I listen to you guys talk about my lyrics, and man, <laughs> you guys have no idea what you're talking about at all. Yeah, what it's the... <laughs> about this. It's like, because I sometimes feel like you're, uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, like with the music part of it, there's no doubt what we're talking about. Yeah, yes, of this course. part is loud, but, you know, when you're talking about <laughs> like even, a lyric, it's, yeah, yeah. you know, it can be, it can be tricky, you know? So it can be tri- of course. And, and that's the human element, which is what makes these things so compelling. If yeah. it was just everything was so cut and dry, there's merit to some of that, but there's there's definitely merit and ambiguity and, and mystery and music, and they dwell in there with Jawbox. And it it's also could be the thing of so many lyricists that I talked to over the last bunch of years will say they have some idea, but mostly they don't know what the song's about either <laughs> you know they learn yeah. about what the song's about as they sing it i would agree with that i've written lyrics like that a long long time ago but would write lyrics that i couldn't fully wrap my head around but they just kind of felt good mm-hmm. and so yeah that's uh that's good so yeah so there it is that's what i got to say about these songs yeah yeah i mean 
like I said, I would probably be kinder about Jawbox ja Plus, about ja Jackpot <laughs> Plus, if it wasn't coupled with such a heavy hitter. And the motorist is just mm -hmm. out of the park with this. We've talked about it. it's one of their best songs. So, Brian, so, let me let me ask you this, because you did this and I did not. But oh, you were going right. to talk about you were going yeah. to talk about uh, comparing these versions with the special mm -hmm. sweetheart versions. Yeah, which was interesting to do. The time length isn't very different. Within five, ten seconds of each song is about the same amount of time. But the main, the biggest change is on Motorist, and it's in the intro. There's no drum machine. There's no lo-fi-ness. It just him kind of singing still mumbling a little but a little clearer with kind of more playing single guitar chords going on underneath and it works but not half as well as i feel like the seven inch version does as far as setting you up and really yeah setting the scene really well so i, I definitely prefer this version especially for that reason but also i don't know i feel like i would never criticize any ted nicely production because i love i think he's a magician in the studio speaking of wizards he brings out just clarity power and brings out a band's character like in a way that is unique to each band and gives you the best possible version of a band sound i feel like in general having said that these versions i prefer probably both versions especially the motorist version on the seven inch more than the album Yes, the album guitars are more present or more crisp and uh, pummeling, which you would hope for anyway on a major label thing. But it sacrifices a little bit of dynamics on the album version. It's a little more, it's a little more just full on for the whole ride versus the seven inch, which you take in more scenery with with it on in uh, more mood on the seven inch. I feel like. And then on Jackpot Plus, I kind of prefer, I prefer most of the LP version of that one just because they sound more confident actually on this LP than they do on the seven inch. The riffs work a little, they feel less, little less sewn together and there's a little more wildness going on on some of the guitar. So it, that kind of sells it for me, but still it's, you know, tomato, tomato, it's, it's still the song itself is only okay it's not bad it's but you know you can only dress up a you know put lipstick on a pig for oh someone. come on <laughs> you're calling this a pig <laughs> hey babe was a good movie uh, boy. Uh, boy. but right. yeah yeah I, you know i wonder what you know since you haven't haven't spoken to jay yet yeah definitely uh get to that because you know the decision. Did you to open put up. lipstick on a pig for did this? You, why did you put that <laughs> shitty song on the first yeah. side of this record? Um, and and that was me imitating you, by the way, because I like the song. Uh, <laughs> no, so. I'm only going to use that quote. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff said, "No," nah. uh, but it was obviously. By the way, did you also notice that each side starts with this tiny little that little down kind of weird scream kind of? It thing? happens on both sides of the record. That's right. That's a good point. I wonder what the, I, that's. Thank you for reminding me. That is something I'll ask him. About. Yeah, because I can't even tell. It's too short to be recognizable. Yeah, but it's like a little like, and then it goes into the song. It happens yeah. on both sides. It's that's like true. two seconds. Yeah, 
But the beginning of Motorist, not including that little weird clip, is obviously such a conscious production decision to make mm-hmm. with the drum machine, with the you know the lo-fi sound before it erupts. Why they didn't choose to, to do that on the on the record, like like I almost feel like is that like was like a major label decision? Did like somebody come in and be like, right. no, that's too weird. Yeah, yeah. Don't do that. We <laughs> you can't know, play or, that on the radio. People are. Or, yeah, it off. hey, yeah. like this is one of the strong songs. Why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or or was it simply? You know, from what I understand about their signing to Atlantic, you'll get more into this, you know, your next episode. But, you know, they were given a lot of accommodations. Right, right. Uh, by like a lot of freedom. Have creative the, control, yeah. which which leads me to believe it was a band choice to not do that. So, I'm, you know, I'm curious about that. Like, why why mm-hmm. do that here and, and do that there? You know, why even re-record these songs at all, really? Yeah. Or both of them, for that matter. Both of them, right. Why not? <laughs> why not? Right. Why not leave Jackpot Plus as sort yeah. of a... A single only song. Yeah, something you know, they that, did savory, that, that but completists want to fill out, or like if they get big, the people would be like, "Oh, there's this other song that they recorded that's on this little label yeah. Discord." You know? And and I'm sure that them going to Atlantic helped Discord. Sure, I'm sure. Plenty yeah. of people discovered Drawbox through those. Rec- you know, I mean, Fear and Special Sweetheart certainly sold more than Gripper Novelty did, probably combined times ten. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that a lot of fans went back and. I'm sure it helped Discord in that way. Yeah. yeah, why do that? Why did these songs get re-recorded? Why did Savory get re-recorded? Maybe that was just an obvious hit. Mm-hmm. And why did the song on the Cracker Bash split not get oh, re-recorded? Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, like like these decisions are kind of interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I wonder, I mean, in the Shutter interview, they touch a tiny bit on it for a sec, but like, I wonder what, Ian's thoughts were during this whole time and if he knew about and was okay with you know both of these bands going to majors and both as parting gifts kind of putting out these two songs seven inches that are two songs that both bands are about to re-record and do on a major label like they're not exclusive songs they are different versions thank you know I mean that at least gives them some different character but still you know, it's it, it seems very undiscord to put out yeah. one to put out singles and two to do it of songs that are completely both represented on full albums on a major label. Yet, I mean, Discord did that themselves. Like, I still feel like this record has its place in the Drawbox catalog. I understand if people consider it irrelevant because the two songs are on mm-hmm. the album. I still feel like this has its place, and maybe that's just my own personal relationship to the record because I remember coming out and right, you, know, you were that there whole in thing. real time, yeah. right? Whereas, let's say the first Holy Roller seven inch, that Origami Sessions, right? All four of those songs oh. <laughs> were put yeah. on the album. Like that's a full four songs. Like to me, yeah. For some reason, I don't feel like I feel like you can live without the Origami Sessions. I don't feel like that's an essential part of the Holy Rollers catalog. Now, maybe the Holy Rollers would feel differently and fans of the Holy Rollers would feel differently about that. But to me, that just sounds like demo versions of four songs they recorded much better on uh, As Is, right? Mm -hmm. That's the first Holy Rollers record. All four of those songs end up on As Is. There's Mm -hmm. nothing left behind. Whereas this, you know, this feels like a conscious effort to release two new songs to the world and, you know, they sound really good. They don't sound like demo versions of like two songs that were going to release later in the year. So, yeah. Yeah. And like I said, weirdly, I 
prefer one of these versions to the Ted Nicely big production on the album, mm-hmm. which wasn't necessarily the case with Shudder to Think. I liked both of those, which he did both the 7-inch and the LP, but I feel like the LP versions are the m- most mature and most fully representative of the Shudder songs, whereas these two, some of the energy and dynamic shifts of these got changed in the process of going to the LP. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. And yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Although, do you think this has as much place as the tongue 7-inch as, as far as being as important? No. Yeah. No, I would say the tongue 7-inch is more important because, well, for that very reason, because uh, that is a standalone 7-inch and those songs were not re-recorded for novelty, nor do they sound like songs that would be on novelty. I mean, yeah, I they, really they, like they sound this. Like just transitions, yeah. They they do, and and this sounds like a transition out of it. I mean, this really like it really sh- makes it very striking to me how different novelty is of a record compared to everything else in the band's catalog. Mm-hmm. Um, I love it. I'm with you. It is my favorite Jawbox record, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it is a, like its own of a piece. But the tongue seven inch to me was like no, like these two songs are for this record. That's it. And I know they tacked it on to some, you know, as bonus tracks, right. but yeah. we don't count that. You know, they yeah, didn't re-record sure. them and put them on the record. But again, that could have been a Discord thing too. Like, no, don't do that. Like, this is all coming on the same label. Let that be that. Let this be this. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, true. Well, if you feel uh, complete, let, we should talk about the graphics on this thing. Yeah. So graphics by Jay Robbins and Steve Raskin. Mm-hmm. Photo by Mark Waters. So, uh, photo singular, although it seems yeah, to me to be two different around. photos. Is rap- it a wraparound? Yeah. Which I, I never realized until looking at it on Discogs with, it's got two, the two, uh, back to, or right next to each other. And you can tell it's all one photo. It's not quite a wraparound. Yeah. Okay. I could see it's the you same. What I'm saying? Yeah. It's the same photo, though. It doesn't literally wrap around because the end of his guitar is here. And, and then it, you could see it over yeah. here. So it's sort of a photo, one photo that's cut two pieces. All right. So this is Bill Barbeau on the front cover, uh, I guess. And then we have uh, poor Zach. You know, the drummer never, <laughs> poor you know, never gets in the photos. They, the know. drummers just never get in the photos. And you can you know. see, uh, you can see Kim in the second part of the photo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Jim Jay's and covered up yeah. in the background. Yep. Uh, I don't know. Do you have anything to say? Obviously, there's no. like some swirly effects <laughs> some and swirly. things are in motion and maybe, you know. It, it's a, it, a variation on the famous sub pop style, but I feel like I like it. I think it's a, a really well-chosen photo for these songs. It, it goes hand in hand in my brain. When I think of these songs, I see those kind of colors and that kind of swirl, especially motorist. It's like really, I don't know. I think it's apropos. It's it's a nice, I mean it's really out of focus and <laughs> that's not like probably technically not a great picture, but I think it works really well. Yeah, it does. And like they have the uh, the catalog number right on the front cover, right? Which this is seventy seven, and it's, yeah, uh, dis like it's dis right dis, dis seventy seven. <laughs> I feel like though that has there been another record like that where they put the catalog number right on the front cover? I feel like there has been. I do too. And I, I should know, but I can't place what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's not common, but yeah, it's happened. It's happened. So, and then on the back, it's got the Fugazi style lyrics, which has become 
kind of uh, the Discord thing to do. I'll the, always say Minutemen style. I'll always say Minutemen uh, style notes, but I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah, just in the way that they're uh, arranged visually. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. It's Minutemen first. Minutemen did it first. Well, you know what, though? The Minutemen did all the lyrics right in a row. I know. You're right. And this is a separation, a so maybe yeah. not. Okay, maybe this is an <laughs> advancement over the Minutemen technique. Yeah. And the record's available, $3 postpaid. Remember when 7 Inches were $3 postpaid? Well, yeah, and even that was like when it was starting to be like, really? That's getting expensive. Re- LPs were just $5 a year or two before this. Yeah, now you, 7 Inches are what, like 15 bucks. Yeah, it's stupid. It's, it's you know, it's so crazy. crazy. I like that I didn't realize... What do you call it? The credits. It's voice, guitar, J. Robbins, whatever. Mm-hmm. Guitar, voice, WC, $3 bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's pretty funny. Um, bass, guitar, can traps, etc. Et <laughs> yeah. El Jefe. Which automatically, right, sets it up for a piece like, I'm a percussionist. Yeah, you yeah, know? true. I, or I jazz my, drummer, you know. Trap I was going to say my. That's yeah. exactly my brain goes to jazz when I hear trap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, it's all right. Uh, the the it's nice that the lyrics are there. That's not always the case on seven inches, especially is when you get into the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it looks nice. It it kind of looks. I feel like the lyrics in that whole section looks fine, looks good, and the colors as well. I feel like. This is firmly in the uh, what's his name realm, post Jeff N- Nelson, the uh, Jason Farrell realm of the actual layout, which I feel like at first Jason Farrell would uh, kind of mimic some of the best elements of Jeff Nelson, and I could be wrong, but I, I feel like he probably laid this out because the color, that kind of lime, soft lime green color that that goes around the the lyrics and the uh credits and the way that it is laid out is is very clean and very clear kind of in the way that jeff nelson would do in the end of minor threat through you know uh late 80s Mm -hmm. and even the uh record labels are very just clean and not quite jazz like but not too far from what a jazz label would look like i feel the sparseness, the lettering, and all that. And and I did mention there are some copies out there that are mislabeled. There are some copies where you think you're playing Jackpot Plus and you're but you're actually playing motorist. Oh, where if you have is, one of those is, copies is rec- that's is, uh is actually no. the right way where A side is is correct. Yes, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird that this is a Ian production to me. Only weird in the fact that it, it doesn't necessarily scream Ian production. Ian guitars are usually way more crisp and upfront. And maybe that was a conscious thing at the time for him or the band, but yeah. It, it'll definitely be interesting to hear Jay's take on it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And to hear the, what he thinks of the two different versions or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah. All right. Well, Jeffrey, what kind of company does this keep in oh i love that you kept this tradition by the way oh I yeah love you i have to i love that okay so uh so this is the third drawback seven inch so i had to go three out 
I know right, from where we from where we were. It's I so have annoying. a feeling. Yeah. I have a feeling that you um, you may have a passing knowledge of both of oh, both of these. Fuck. You know what? I'm gonna have to go step into the next room and reassess mine because I just realized in my brain I had the tar split in my head, so I was I picked out splits instead of. Okay, can we talk about this for one second? Yeah, I think it's fascinating. Listening to the episode about the uh, that you guys that you did with uh, Scott, Circus. the yeah, the split seven inch about mm-hmm. how people organize <laughs> their record collections. I know. I think I it, know. It's, it's such a controversial thing, and so it, it is. And yeah. I have yet to meet anybody who uh, organizes their split seven inches the same way I do, and I feel that the way I do it is the most logical way to do it. Oh my god! But nobody uh, else does let- it. Lay, lay Scott, it on us. Scott came closest. Scott came closest. Scott alphabetizes. So my record collection basically but, goes. But he puts yeah. his his splits with his. That's where we depart. Yeah. That's yeah, where we part comps. ways. Yeah. But how I, I basically my my record collection is organized: comps, soundtracks, splits, and then everything else. That's how my. If you Wait, came in, put all that stuff in the front. I put comps, right. If you look at my wow. collection or my CDs or seven inches, I don't have any soundtrack seven inches, but <laughs> you would, you would find, right. You would find the, uh, well on the shelf, it would the start record shelf, with, you would find 10 inches first. You'd find the 10 inches first. Oh my God. I so, have a completely opposite. So, okay. But yeah. basically I have them categorized comps, soundtracks. Now he mixes his split seven inches with mm-hmm. his regular catalog. I do not do that. I have an own for two band splits. Mm-hmm. They have their own their own thing. I like Scott alphabetize them by the band that comes first alphabetically. Oh, so not the band okay. you like, but the band. That... No, no, because that is the that is the easiest way for me to locate something in that collection <laughs> is to do it alphabetically by the first band in the thing. So, Drawbox Tar. Oh, the first that... band on the record, not the first alphabetical. No, band by no. You had it right the second time. <laughs> it's by alphabetically by the band that comes first on the record alphabetically. Wait, so name name an example. Name an example. So uh, let's say the uh, so Drawbox Tar uh-huh. would be filed under J for Drawbox. Would be filed under J. So oh, I see. If a split, Faith, the Faith Void LP. Yeah, spied under F, not because we call it Faith Void, but because F comes before V. So I even still like on how it's labeled on the record. Like if it was if it was the Void Faith split LP, that's how we called it. It would still go under F. Oh, okay. I see. F comes before V, so it just makes it easier for me to locate stuff that way. I don't know anyone else that files their that organizes their splits (laughs) that way, but I do. So anyway, nerdy stuff. Okay. So before that. we do this, do you want to go yeah. take a break and find your, and then we'll do this? Yeah, luckily it's right ne- next to me, and okay. I have them all together now. Not not alphabetized. Not, not alphabetized. Okay. <laughs> all, right. all right. So so we <laughs> now we know how you file, which is interesting to me because, like I said, I do it very similar, although my seven inches are still a little bit disarray. Uh Although they're all together, they finally all live together. But never happy about that. 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> but my, uh, especially my LPs, but also the seven inches, I do the same. The splits are one thing, the comps are one thing, and soundtracks are one thing, but they all live at the end of my record collection. Same with my 10 inches all together at the end mm-hmm. of my record collection versus the beginning. So it's pretty close. Yeah, and that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. So, and this is not a split seven inch. This doesn't even right. Even the, this is conversation. relevant but, till next episode. <laughs> all right. So, I think that you are going to be somewhat familiar with both of these records. And you know, we used to do this. I used to never actually listen to these things before the show. Yeah. Sometimes I'd listen for the next day if it was something I hadn't listened to in a while. But I listened to both of these today. Oh, cool. So the first release, short-lived band. I think this is the only record they ever put out as a seven inch. But what a breeding ground for Bay Area punk of the early 80s, late 80s and early 90s. And that is Mm -hmm. the Isocracy 7-inch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bedtime for Isocracy. This is Lookout Records number five. Early Lookout Records, 1988. And um, if you don't know who these guys are, you certainly know the bands that came out of this band. Uh, Jason Beboot, Vocalist, bassist Martin Brahm, both founding members of Sam I Am. Uh, guitarist Lenny Johnson went on to play in Filth. And oh, cool. uh, the drummer, Al Sobrante, a.k.a. John Kiffmeyer, was the original drummer in Green Day. And uh, it was engineered by Kevin Army, who worked with a lot of those Oakland East Bay bands, has a tremendous resume. You know, it's it's fast, it's cool, it's there's a lot of silly songs on here, a lot of like twelve second long, just kind of silly. Mm. Sounds like a bunch of friends goofing off in the studio. But there are a couple of songs on here that really give a hint of some things to come, especially from uh the singer from Jason. There's a That's song cool. on here called Rodeo, which is really good. And like you could tell, like, he's got a really good voice. And of course, we know from Sam I am. He has yeah, an amazing man. voice. So cool record. Cool little record. Nice. And they, they've been playing lately, which is pretty cool. Sam I am. Yeah. Oh they've yeah. Oh yeah. A bunch of, they've been touring, right? They've they've been playing um too many voices actually played with them a couple of years ago on really? Long Island at uh, Amityville Music Hall. And they were tremendously awesome dudes, first of all. Like mm. super, yeah. super nice guys. And they were amazing. Uh, you know, from my tastes. I'm familiar with most of Sam I Am's catalog. Maybe not like the last two records they did. I have a preference for the new Red Archive stuff, for the early mm-hmm. records, the self-titled records, Soar, mm-hmm. Billy. Um, I like I like the stuff after that too. I've only had but one after that, but yeah, th- those they're good records. They are good records, but I mean they play very little material from those earliest records. Really? Yeah, they don't. You know, maybe they played one or two songs combined from those three records and everything else was after that. Thor was an important one for me. Yeah. Oh, it's a big one. It's a big yeah. one. All right. So on the other side, we have the first release by a band that put out quite a few records. And that is the Jazz June. Mm. Remember these guys? These guys I were do. from uh, Pennsylvania. This and is I can't their first place their sound. Well, um so this is their their first record, uh, The Necessary Conditions of Currents and Signal. It was a three-way, this uh, came out in 96. It was a three-way split release (laughs) between Mm -hmm. Keystone Records, Ember Records, and Nickel Communications. Um, Nickel Communications never did anything else, I don't think. Keystone and Ember actually merged and became Keystone Ember Records and and put out a bunch of stuff. So these guys were from Pennsylvania, Eastern Pennsylvania, 
and it's i guess what the midwestern emo sound i guess you would uh-huh. say i listen to this and this is actually really good uh yeah. the song that takes up all of side a antiquated is really good um i mean so you know if you're into like bands like mineral early jimmy eat world things like that this this science chair etc yeah yeah totally this this is in that ballpark um mm. Really strong songs, not like overly complicated or overly moody or anything. Good vocals. Yeah. I, I like this one. And it's okay. been years since I listened to it. So that's cool. You? There were just one of those names swirling around everywhere that I knew by the name and would see their records, but and somehow thought I'd heard, but from the sound of it, I probably have never even heard. <laughs> yeah. I mean they they broke up and actually uh got back together in the two thousands. And I think they put out a record as recently as maybe like eight or nine years ago. Yeah. So wow. I don't know if they're playing now, but they did They did get back together for a little bit. Yeah. Well, both ones that actually I have some uh, knowledge of, and it's not any uh, Long Island hardcore in there. I was going to say neither of these bands from Long Island. <laughs> neither one. So this is an, another element of the new Kaplan era. I'm turning over a new leaf. Yeah. <laughs> New album leaf. So mine live and now I'm embarrassed because one, like I said, I my brain was already in the split land. So I was I was thinking the tar split. So if I would have known, I would have listened to these, especially because the first one I have never heard. It, it's one I think I got when I was working at Maximum Rock and Roll doing reviews. So maybe I reviewed it. I don't think so though. I don't even know how you pronounce it. In Zirli, it's I-N-Z-I-R-L-I. It's an Italian band. In Zirli, so, I don't know. Yeah. I never yeah. heard of it. Yeah. It's kind of cool. It, the, it's from 95. All the songs are in Italian. A lot of lyrics, a lot of uh, kind of emo-ish, mid-90s type of pictures. And the, <laughs> the, you know, lots of inserts. It's very 90s but I have no idea what it sounds like. <laughs> I'm kind of curious now. It's recorded at Blue Trains Recording Studio. So anyhow, maybe I'm right, sitting on a, a classic. Home- yeah, you have homework to do. I do. <laughs> and the other side is a band that would probably have played shows with Jazz June. I know I played a bunch of shows with them and really good uh kind of in the ballpark of Midwest emo meets Jawbreaker, actually. band called Knapsack. Yep. From wow, you don't have a whole lot of J7s if you're like well, into Knapsack. I know. I know. Well, I, I, you know, I've already gone through Judas Iscariot. I already gone and Jawbreaker, right? That's Jawbreaker, like, yeah. Well, that's before. But yeah, okay. I, but I do remember Knapsack. I never really listened to them, though. They're really good, man. Easy signifiers would be that Midwest emo meets like so like a little bit more of that kind of dreamy ish emo melodicism with some kind of jawbreaker esque vocals and romantic sentiments in them. But they were a really good live band and they're one of those bands that fell through the cracks of my memory until recently. And actually they're from Davis. I'm noticing as i look at it which is cool that's where my son goes to Hmm. vet school but uh they had some really some songs that really stuck with me and i feel like they've either recently got back together or like every other band of the era are reissuing their stuff 
yeah, uh, they're worth checking out. And I think you would like them. So this one was the knapsack train wreckers, uh, yeah. seven inch. I think, I think I didn't give them a chance for totally unfair reasons. Cause of the name, because, because the name and just, you know, that whole emo, like this, the, every kid had a knapsack on it. I know. Show. I know. And yeah, like, if, I was sort of, even though I was at that shows and like a lot of those bands, like there was something about those kids who just like, no, what I do you have in there, man? You're just going to a show. Is that necessary? Like, like come on. Do we really need our <laughs> How whole many life? Supplies like, in your do you need? And yeah. I feel like way it was like their name, like sort of a take on that. Aesthetic That's so funny. Cause I, I don't know. I guess because I saw them before I even thought about it, like on a bill or something. So I didn't have the chance to just judge them by name, which I would have done the same. I would have been like, <laughs> Oh God, these guys can't be good. But no, they were, they were, <laughs> they were a really good band. No, I know that they're a pretty popular band for sure. So, yeah. So anyhow, that's where, that's where mine live. And with that, let's, uh, Let's talk to Jay Robbins and find out about these songs that we pontificated on for a while there. We wouldn't have done it if it was an LP. So deep. Like if we were doing reading. an episode on Fear Your Own Special Sweetheart, yeah. we would not have spent the amount of time. Oh my we did God. On these I two hope songs. not. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. We would have sure. gone quicker. But you know, it's a two song seven inch. We're gonna, we got to fill the space. Yeah, we're like, we a, we're like a gas, Brian. We're like a gas. We just got to fill the space. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I, I don't don't you miss me? Want... Don't you miss me? Yeah, I, yeah, I, well, you did miss me. (laughs) I know. Oh, okay. (laughs) At the beginning of the show, I missed you. (laughs) And now it's like, all right, I'm tired of you. No, no. (laughs) That was great. Uh, Yeah. So, (laughs) Jay, help us out. I always think that's a part of the charm of a band, right? Is like the synergy, like you get, like everybody's brains kind of. Especially, especially at this age, and a band that we're in for a long time when they were younger, it's like they we're all sort of bouncing off each other's brains. And the ability, I kind of felt that happen in the reunion, and it was really a fun thing about the reunion to do like our brains kind of bounced off each other in that way. That that was like I was like, oh yeah, cool, of course, you know, just that like an old friendship, like you know the person and they know you. And but anyway, yeah, yeah, you're back in the stream, yeah. And, uh, yeah, with doing creative stuff too, that's a good point. Especially when you're young, there's that uh I wouldn't call it friction, but that the kind of creative pushing of each other. Like, oh yeah, you're gonna do that? Well, what if I do this? <laughs> yeah. 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 As I said last time, I saw you guys uh the two of the shows for the uh Jawbreaker tour out here recently. And I believe both times you played motorist, at least one of them, if not both. I think that we probably I think there isn't a show that we haven't played motorist. I was going to say, it seems like a definite mainstay in the set, right? Yeah. Jackpot plus gets left out sometimes, but motorist, I don't think, I, I think we played it every show of the, of the reunion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for good reason. It It's so massive, especially live. Well, I guess let's start, let, let's rewind a little bit. And since Zach isn't here, let's have you uh, do the honors of introducing uh you guys' introduction and uh, how he was in your orbit and how uh, things kind of evolved from uh, deciding to go with him. Well, uh, we met Zach. I mean, I'm not, I don't have the dates planted in my brain. Kim would be good for that. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we met him the first time we met him uh, was very early out of town show for us. One of our earliest times 
leaving DC, he set up a show for us in Rochester, New York, where he lived and his band Powerline played the show. And I remember watching him. I mean, I remember being blown away by his drumming, you know, just like he was such a powerful drummer and he was so the engine, the -hmm. engine of that band, you know, and a lovely guy, like, like a real character. And so he was somebody that kind of stuck, you know, I mean, I remember even thinking like, wow, I would love to play music with this guy. Like, because, you know, though Adam has always been a great drummer and and a great guy, it's just a totally different approach, you know, like, you know, like when we started, when, when we started playing with Zach and writing with Zach, a lot, as I'm sure I've told you before, like a lot of song ideas generated from beats, like Zach writing songs without songs, you know, like he would mm-hmm. just he uh, would compose. compose, compose beats and then songs, we would jam around the beats and songs would develop out of that. That was really nice to have someone like, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but basically like I had never met or really encountered a drummer who contributed to a band in that way i'd always thought of drummers as you know the drummer as a person who's kind of putting something to a song you know Mm -hmm. and i often thought of beats for the like i would think of songs like kind of whole songs would show up in my head or three quarters of a song and and i'd have a pretty strong idea about how the drums should go but so he anyway so he made a really strong impression just Mm -hmm. like wow you know um from he his band open the show that you guys yeah, play they, yeah. yeah he he set up the show and, and mm-hmm. powerline the band that he was in opened the show and i think we played with them also on that same run in erie pennsylvania i think we did i might have that wrong but anyway it was just like a it it, it was just a brief moment you know meeting him that was when we were still a trio it was still me and mm-hmm. kim and adam so long right. very early in the band and then at some point uh that band powerline broke up zach decided to move down to dc to go to school and i can't remember i think maybe or well for whatever reason he was coming down to dc he moved down Hmm. and so he lived in the jawbox house for a while we had a an opening of the the room and so he, he moved in there i mean the main things that i remember from that time you know we took the band took a bit of a hiatus uh kim and i had split up and Kim and Bill were starting to be involved and I was invited to go play bass with Pegboy mm. because Social Distortion invited them on tour and their bass player had just quit and we had a kind of a strong acquaintance like mutual admiration thing going on for a long time so I was just kind of like well you know this is a weird time for me emotionally because the relationship ends the band I still want the band to go on this other thing is now happening with Kim and Bill and Adam is gone. So I'm like, the band feels like it's sort of in flux and I'm don't want to think about it. I'm going to go take a rock and roll vacation with these excellent dudes in a band that I really admire. Go have, you know, I had this great opportunity to do this awesome tour. So I went and did that and it was great, but sort of concurrently, you know, when Zach was living in the group house, he and I would jam a little bit. So I was like, if we're going to carry on, I'm sure I have this chronologically. It's like a total salad. It's just, <laughs> I'm not, I'm sorry, but, but that's fine. You know, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, memory is fluid. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thank goodness. But anyway, the gist of it is just that I was like, well, if we are going to, in my mind, if we were going to carry on doing the band, Zach's the person that we should play with because 
I think just that strong feeling of like playing with him a little bit and sort of you could throw out the tiniest kernel of something and get something back. And everything that he would play was just would just sort of like make you want to play to it, you know, mm -hmm. just be like, oh, that rhythm's amazing. I want to be that wish I'm going to I want to do something with that, you know, just mm -hmm. a really just a really forceful and creative personality. So so I got back from the social distortion tour and we started jamming with Zach. Coming back from the social distortion tour, was there any party that considered uh, or was there any talk of continuing on with Pegboy as opposed to trying to do your own thing? Um, I think it would have been, I mean, it would have been really fun. I had such an awesome time playing with those guys. But the thing is, I think that for Pegboy, on one hand, I felt like I really just it was very easy it was super easy hang with those guys i really love those guys to this day and like in one way it was a super good fit but in another way it was a, it was not a, like i felt at the time i was like i don't like i need to be writing like i could write for pegboy now better than i could have written for them then i just thought of it as like like i don't want to ruin their band with my overly complicated ideas you know like because my whole thing was like i would for a long time was like i'm i was trying to outsmart myself and like one up myself and be like oh well you you know you thought it was going to be like this but now here's this other weird thing that's going to like kind of subvert the idea and like that's just not what their you know their beauty is is that you know it's like john Haggerty could just play that guy can play like a b power chord and you're just like it's like the first time you ever heard it in your yeah, life, yeah. you know, you instantly. And yeah. And it, it, he just like invented that shit. I mean, it's amazing. And, uh, and I didn't, especially then I didn't think that way. So I was like, I was sort of thinking like, wow, it'd be really fun to keep playing with these guys, but I would be the guy that ruined Pegboy. Yeah. was sort of what I thought. <laughs> and then I was like, meanwhile, meanwhile, if Jawbox carries on, here's like this totally new, kind of energy that definitely comes from a weird planet you know me meaning zach right it's sort uh -huh. of creatively coming from a weird planet that feels very adjacent to the way like creatively really in the same neighborhood of just like automatic fucked upness <laughs> so, well i mean so it's, I would, it's, so, it's it's definitely perfect union at the perfect time i mean because you guys were musically moving in somewhat similar direction already albeit you know, Adam Styles much more on top of the beat, just full driving. Uh, yeah, I mean, right. I mean, style, that, but. exactly. Like, I think Adam's proclivities are to play, you know, he's a rock drummer. He's a fucking excellent rock drummer. He would tend to want to, like, you know, drive or mm -hmm. have a backbeat and not kind of be so uh, poly polyrhythmic, you know. And, you know, it's also, you know, drummers think differently than guitarists, not to generalize like a total asshole, but at the time i remember thinking of songs you know around the sort of novelty era and really having to fight for patterns like rhythm patterns that weren't you know it's sort of like you'd show an idea and the first thing that would happen is a backbeat and mm -hmm. in my head i'd be like no no it's a weird it's a mixed up rhythm it's not a backbeat mm -hmm. and having to really push for that every time so i thought oh you know it was very it was very exciting to to think about writing with 
with somebody with such a totally different grab bag of influences, you know, and somebody who seemed very excited to be in this band. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, Zach was a good friend then and has only become a better friend in the intervening time, you know? So it was very, it was pretty much like, wow, you know, new chapter. Like, let's see, let's see what we pick up. Oh yeah. I mean, and each kind of change, you know, with Bill and then with Zach, like, seems to have really gave you guys a creative uh, injection and pushed the music into new areas, whether they were headed that way or not. It was definitely cemented certain uh, changes. It's evident in uh, each new member coming in their first uh, records on the Motorist Jackpot 7-inch. To me, it feels more so evident on Motorist than Jackpot Plus. Although Jackpot Plus is ambitious, Motorist just really nails it, it feels like, of the two. Well, Jackpot was, uh, as Zach reminded me, Jackpot was the first song that we wrote together. Mm. And it was very much like, in my memory, it was very much like, okay, now we're, it's like practice number one, you know, what are we going to do? And it, it it's almost like we had no preconception and I mean, I'm sure it didn't happen exactly this way, but in my rose-colored memory, it was almost like, okay, what's going to happen? One, two, three, four, go. <laughs> and then whatever the first thing, you know, and I mean, it, it is a bit like that. Like if you listen to that song, it's fucking E, <laughs> you know, it's like bah, the most rudimentary, at least starts in the most <laughs> rudimentary way on guitar. It's kind of like Tools and Chrome part two in a way. <laughs> the guitar parts at least the guitar and bass kind of foundation of it but you know a little more quirky but yeah yeah that's your yeah and i think the thing that carries the whole song is that in putting it together it was fairly spontaneous like a lot of jawbox stuff especially as we went on well over and over like a roller coaster a lot a lot of jawbox stuff was like seriously worked like, oh, no, 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 no. In the second verse, we have to do it this way. And then, oh, let's drop a beat in that verse. And then let's mm -hmm. have a weird break. And like, oh, two months ago, we were playing it this way, but I just came up with this other bridge or whatever. And that song, I really think, and Motorist too, was very much like, boom, here's a song. Whoa. Mm -hmm. You know, which is pretty cool, you know. <laughs> and not anyone's, not any individuals, it wasn't any individual coming to practice and saying oh. here's my song here's how it goes mm -hmm. i mean to that extent it probably i mean jackpot plus is just like yeah like somebody threw a firecracker in the practice space and then the smoke cleared and there was the song <laughs> but like motorist is you know i would say it's because of the beat like zach had the beat yeah and the song developed out of the beat yeah yeah i absolutely could see that I figured it had to either be beat or jam uh, based as far as how it got started. Cause it's yeah. such a heavy groove. Well, let's see. So do you recall when, I mean, obviously it had to be in 92, but at what point you got back from tour and, and you guys started playing together and uh, the kind of trajectory. No. no? <laughs> okay. No. All right. So, I mean, the other, the other okay. thing I kind of remember is being, I remember uh, Kim and Bill and Zach jammed a little bit and they did 
some demo version of like an alternate. It was like a super kind of slow core. It might be the only thing. I don't think we ever released it. I'm not even sure if I have the master. It would have been like an eight track cassette master because we had that we had an eight track cassette recorder a Tascam machine mm -hmm. in our practice space and we did all our demos on that and some stuff that was released but they did a they did an arrangement of the song chump from novelty that mm -hmm. was like super super down tempo and like whispery slowcore kind of thing i can't remember how i heard it can't remember if i heard it uh when i got back but so they were sort of tinkering at the edges of things but they weren't really and and learning songs i think they were learning old songs oh, okay. and then while i was on tour and then they also worked this demo of, of chump that oh. never sort of never the demo got finished and mixed and everything but then we just never did anything with it oh interesting yeah well that's and so when you got back from tour they were already kind of conversant musically already together and probably that's, made it easier that's kind of coming back to me as being the case yeah mm. if not when exactly what do you recall your first uh show with zach that's that would be one for kim mm. because i yeah, yeah. i truly don't i truly don't remember i wish i did i'm sad to say i can't no I that's can't. okay Dr. and yeah. well in that first little batch of early days with him did it feel different on stage like uh as far as the feel the energy the type of interaction yeah yeah, yeah. i mean he, to me very very different yeah i mean he's got um, a very clean style for one thing too like every hit and uh even symbol is is very clear it's he isn't a noisy i mean he's a heavy drummer but not a noisy drummer from what right from no i mean i think right he's always been really very like things are really composed like everything that he would do is like consistent and also i do remember it's funny like recently i saw some footage from a show that we did at cbgb's and uh we were playing everything like three times too fast which is pretty normal i guess <laughs> but i mean it's like were we trying to kill people with this music like we were it was really like pretty full on and i and a lot of it is he's an incredibly hard hitting drummer he broke a lot of shit <laughs> he still breaks a lot of shit you know yeah. not just cymbals but like kick drum pedals not the shaft of the pedal but like the footboard oh wow like his That's like unusual yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so it cre definitely creates a feeling of even if you're you know like i'm in the history of, of jawbox like i'm um plagued with self-doubt and kind of like self-loathing 60% of the time I'm on stage just like fighting a, a mental battle you know mm. so to have to be playing like Zach's drumming has such an undeniability that you know it's just like whoa get out of the way yeah, yeah. fall <laughs> you in know? line you know? yeah yeah that that it's quite bolstering <laughs> yeah yeah oh that i could see yeah. that i mean playing with different drummers over the years too i mean it just it can change or it always does change everything uh feel wise so like yeah. playing with that strong a drummer uh must have just what you talk about you feel like you're 
attacking the audience in that video, it must have made you even unconsciously, much less consciously play like twice as hard as you would normally hit the yeah. chords and stuff. Yeah. yeah. It was pretty nuts, pretty nuts to see because I don't typically revisit that kind of shit. I can't remember why I, how I ended up on it, but mm -hmm. I was really like, Whoa, that was us. Wow. <laughs> and the other thing too, is like, I think this has changed a little bit, but I, at that time he was really, he's always been a real, like behind the beat kind of a drummer mm -hmm. and, um, which is super cool. But even to the extent that like things would sometimes drag, it wouldn't feel like, but not with that feeling like a loss of the energy, yeah, yeah. but it still was you, it just wasn't something I was familiar with because I'm used, I had been used to playing with a more like kind of forward, like pushing forward drummers, but even on a fast song, like jackpot, you know, he's kind of swingy and there's a lot of space mm -hmm. just like he was a pretentious word, like pocket it's fast, but it's not hurried, you know? Right. It's not rushed. Sure. Yeah. I mean, even before uh, getting on the call today and, and previously, but to kind of have it clear in my head, the difference between the uh, the motorist on the seven inch versus the uh, LP kind of a beat them. And the LP definitely, uh, or CD is the probably the main thing back then, but the, yeah. the, the full length, the, the drumming is very imperceptibly slower than on the seven inch and like even more uh and maybe partially down to production i don't know but even more uh, uh mechanical and, and not in a negative way but right no but the but the album was the first time that we had ever played to a click track oh okay that, and, that's the and, ted, the ted nicely effect huh yeah and it was very it's actually weird i think about this sometimes now because of because i you know record bands mm -hmm. and it's so weird to me but ted never once i think it's because we had when we did the album we had such a luxurious amount of time that he thought it would be fine but he never prepared us to use the click mm -hmm. we never had a pre-production meeting where he was like you guys need to start practicing to a click track right right we instead we got in the studio thinking that we were really tight and we were going to bang shit out and what were we doing with all this time and then really having to go back to brass tacks and like you know i mean zach picked it up pretty quickly for the most part like he was able to incorporate it you know i think it was a challenge but he sunk his teeth into it i fucking hated it mm -hmm. until i eventually loved it now i love it but like but it, it was the it was the, the difference and i think that's the big difference that i hear between the seven inch and the the, uh, the full-length versions and the version of savory that we did mm -hmm. um on the edsel split you know those versions are a little loosey-goosey not for not in the rhythm section the rhythm section's yeah. tight as the drum i'm really just talking about me like I'm, my playing <laughs> is super sloppy super sloppy on the seven inch versions and super tight on the album version because we took the time to ensure that it would be so mm. you know so I learned like the album was really like a master class, like working with Ted, because I had never focused on things like, you know, like that the, the first time microscopic I ever heard... precision. Huh? Yeah. I never heard the phrase ahead, ahead of the beat or behind the beat. I didn't know what mm. that meant. Oh, wow. you know, he was, yeah. 
I thought we were tight. You know, it's punk rock. Like I thought we were tight because we hit the stops together, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then it was like, no, we're going to listen bar by bar and, until you can really hear. And then I'm like, oh, yeah. And then he's like, do you hear that you're kind of a little bit out of tune? And I'm like, oh, yes, I can. He's like, that's because <laughs> look at how you're gripping the guitar. I just was I was just like, oh, so what I'm discovering is like how bad I suck. Whereas before that, it wasn't, you know, it was much <laughs> like, in, in the, yeah, just like in the studio and out, like, boom, mm -hmm. bang it out, you know, no time to second guess. And wow. you mentioned about the click when you record bands now, what's your, do you encourage it or do you kind of leave it to them? What's your philosophy? I have, no, I have no orthodoxy about it whatsoever. Okay. I think it's, I think it's absolutely up to, it's a decision that I would arrive at with the band. And there's some bands that, you know, usually, usually if, if a band doesn't want to record with a click, there's a really good reason for it kind of energetically. And the music always turns out better. It's just like the number one thing is like the band should feel comfortable and feel psyched. Mm -hmm. And sometimes like for me personally playing, I feel more psyched in the studio because the click is like having a spotter on the high wire, you know, or having a net. Right. Yeah. But like, um, you know, that the finished I, product isn't going to be a mess with the click or you, you like, right. That. Or just, right. Or just like having, right. Just having a reference. That's not, you know, I might have okay, an okay internal metronome. I've become really good at tuning out. You know, there's a, there's some way when you first start playing with a click where it's just like somebody yelling in your ear, how mm -hmm. wrong you are. Yeah, you're yeah. wrong you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong you know I'm and that's all you can hear <laughs> yeah. yeah and like but i think of it more like it's just a helpful friend who's tapping on your shoulder letting you know <laughs> you know whatever you're just letting you know that you're you know you're you're in the realm of the timing like you're you're not you know i don't know i just find it i find it it's useful for right, a lot of things now it's but, comforting for you yeah exactly yeah. but you don't get uh the void side of faith yeah. void yeah i was track, you know that's, like, that's perfect so. a perfect example i was gonna use another discord one and say like you know i could see and i know they even struggled with when they were told to use one i could see fugazi doing a click track and being okay eventually whereas rights of spring forget it you'd never get that album with uh, with a click track right yeah the whole the whole it's and it's totally it's totally an energetic thing it's just weird when I think about that, like going to do Sweetheart, that like the, the click was extremely helpful and extremely challenging. And we, I think it's it's one element that turned us into a way better band. But, you know, I mean, it was, it's just a tool. So Yeah, sure. And yeah. do you, I, I had no idea we're gonna, that, that I was going to have us spend this much time on click, but... <laughs> Do you guys use one live? Um, no, no, Jawbox doesn't. No, and like I do in the my solo band uh -huh. does only in songs because we have some songs with loops, mm, like some right. songs with with loops and sort Programming of extra and tracks sure. and stuff. Yeah, so there are you know two or three songs with it, but I sort of am resistant to you know I, it's when it's necessary, it's cool. And I'm glad that I've played the drummers who are conversant with it and it's comfortable. It doesn't feel like an enemy, you know, mm -hmm. but like it's, I, I don't, I kind of think like 
yeah, I don't like yeah, you I don't, don't want, want it to get, it, get way, in the way. Yeah, I kind of think like it's it's okay. Like if things are live, it's it's not. It's more. It's about like the energy. Mm-hmm. You know, I've I've seen bands that exactly replicated the sound of their record live, like uh, to an uncanny degree. Yeah, yeah. And and I found that like the most exciting part of the show for me was when the drummer kind of slipped up. Sure. And then yeah. I'd be like, oh shit, look, it is people. Oh, they are playing. You know, <laughs> like so. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, it's a it's a digression. But, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But Absolutely. definitely, no, definitely no clicks, no clicks on the jackpot or, or motorist, you know. And at that time, we felt like, well, Zach is practically a click track, like he's so fucking solid. And it was also the other thing that was fun that I remember about it. Well, there's a few things. There's loads, actually. I mean, it was the only the only time we ever worked with with Ian and Don, where those two those uh, uh oh really the jack oh. yeah jackpot seven inch and um jackpot Guitar. seven inch. And, the tar split yeah. were produced by Ian and it was, it was the Ian and Don team. Somehow I forgot that they weren't the ones on the uh, earlier ones. That's wild. Yeah, no. Cause the first, cause grip we did with Eli Janney. Right. And novelty we did with Ian Burgess, who was such an important. Oh, right. That was a influence. huge, huge yeah. part of that story. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Well, and you, just real quick, this would be a good uh, kind of way into the seven inch you know, we talked click and what opens motorists, but uh, what sounds like a very lo-fi demo kind of uh, recording with you singing and playing guitar with a old school drum machine before, into the I song. Think, yeah, I think it. I think that I might be wrong about this. It, the guitar and vocals might be from a basement recording. Or we might have done them on the fly right then. But I do remember Zach tapping the beat on the drum machine. Like that's just like like a finger playing drum machine. Not not a it's not oh, okay. a, it's not a programmed. Uh-huh. He's literally just playing like do do dit do do like wow. with his fingers <laughs> on the drum machine. I do know that was a pretty spontaneous thing. Like, I think we were trying to put it together and there was some second guessing on my part and I was sort of going, oh, maybe it's not that cool or whatever. Now I think it's pretty cool. Now I, I think, think it's, it's actually sort of cooler than the, I mean, it's just different. It's like, because yeah. I don't remember how we, how, what the order of things was when we would play that song live, how we would do the intro. Because the intro came up later. I sort of remember after the fact feeling like, uh, that drum machine intro, it's like, what are we trying to be too clever? Like it should just be, we should just be sort of brassy and forthright and just guitar, guitar and shouting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, I think they're both great versions, but I, intro wise, I do prefer the seven inch uh, just because it's so unique and different and it, it doesn't sound pretentious. And I think it's cool that, you know, most bands, if they do something like that, wouldn't have either wouldn't have vocals or would have like some just very minimal thing, but you've got a whole verse going on in that kind of hard to hear, uh, you know, lo-fi recording before the song kicks yeah. in. Versus yeah. I feel like, yeah. I feel like it was my, me- my in, in, in my memory of it, it was a pretty, that came together pretty much on the fly, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't, it wasn't overarranged, and that sort of, that's part of why I think it's cool now. I'm just like, wow, that's, 
that wasn't our usual, wouldn't have been our usual MO. We always were hyper prepared apart from the lyrics. That's me. <laughs> apart from me, I would be the last minute guy, but I wouldn't be bold like that, you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cool. You know, I would be, I would be fearful. I wouldn't be bold. <laughs> I'd be like, Oh my God. Oh shit. I'm cr- cramming for the exam. Right. So, and it wasn't like that. It was just like a fun thing that just coalesced and stuck, you know? And I do remember that about Ian, like Ian being very encouraging about like that kind of like being able to pick up on like a wave that we were riding, just going like, Oh yeah, there you go. You know? Right. Yeah, yeah, that's one thing that's come up again and again that is probably less known about him, especially as a producer, that he's often the one that encourages the the most far out experimentation on the records. He's the one that, that's like, yeah, yeah, go go with that crazy idea, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is nice, you know? I, I mean, I appreciate that as a quality and I appreciate that as a memory of working with Ian, you know? And I kind of cut you off you you said you had a few uh real solid bullet points that came to you when you were thinking of this seven inch the drum machine is one i think also maybe the vocals zach said something about this like a contact mic like the vocals on the, that intro might have been recorded with some kind of contact mic taped to my chest something like that wow he was like you know don't forget jackpot's the first song we wrote i was like yeah that's true that's cool <laughs> That might, yeah, I can't, that, that might've been all, he didn't have a lot of bullet points. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We covered them. Those might've been the big ones, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and let's see. I feel like there's maybe more parts on, for sure on Jackpot, but more textures going on on Motorist with the distorted bass at one point and with the kind of uh, guitar tones you guys mess around with. You know, I don't think so, actually. No? In my in my memory, both of those songs are really, you know, apart from the wacky intro, that's just like a recording of us playing the songs for the mm-hmm. most part. And there oh, might yeah, have been... Yeah. I didn't mean like as far I, as studio... Uh, oh, just the arrangements. Just lines. the arrangements, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know, I know, like, Bill doing the little bing, bing, bing with the tremolo. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, you know... But that wasn't too, I mean, that was, that doesn't feel, in my mind, it doesn't feel like much different from the way that we were already thinking about things guitar arrangement wise. Oh, sure. I mean, definitely Zach's to use probably, I think the literally the words you said earlier, he's definitely the engine on, uh, <laughs> on motorist, uh, yeah. which is ironic. Uh, whereas uh, jackpot plus just feels like, like you said, kind of the whole band just all right, now we're going to this part, this part, this part, go, you know, it, yeah. it I mean, the, no the one biggest, jumps out. Yeah. The biggest thing I remember about writing that song too, is that the ending was, it was like, Oh no, let's do, let's uh, do try and do one of those kind of clobbering bad brain mm. style out of left field outro kind of moves, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could see um, that. Yeah. So both songs open on the seven inch with some kind of weird, talk slash yell once backwards sounding really oh yeah <laughs> yeah oh, I was hoping you would say to that there's got to be a story behind <laughs> no i don't remember it at all i gotta listen it might be if there's an indistinct yell it could have been bill that was like he's big into that i was big into that idea too like the the sort of off mic shout yeah. kind of deal yeah exactly. or it could have been zach actually we're all <laughs> we're all off mic shouters 
for three of us anyway. Kim was not an off mic shouter. But... Yeah, it's like a split second thing that's just like. Aah! Then on the other side, it sounds like it's the same thing backwards, just uh, before it goes. Uh, uh, all, all I can think of is that Fugazi record. I think it's on End Hits, that thing, because I was listening to uh, Wugazi recently. <laughs> and it, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, my God, that doesn't even shit. Now, now I got to uh, listen to them. Yeah. I got to yeah. actually listen to Chakot Plus. <laughs> the other thing I do remember, which was a new development, was like the lyrics of jackpot plus Zach contributed a lot of those. Oh really? Like, yeah. Like sweet Dempsey was a, like, I kind of knew that I wanted to have a song that related to gambling. Cause I think at the time, I mean, my dad did not have a gambling addiction per se, but, uh, well, was, no, I wouldn't even say per se. He didn't, he didn't have a gambling addiction, but it was the thing that he would do. Like he would go to Atlantic city with his mom and like, he at one point i remember him saying something to me that freaked me out so much he goes yeah you know sometimes i get this feeling and it's just like i just know i can't lose mm. and i was like that's troubling <laughs> right <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> like because uh, so you definitely I, can and probably will <laughs> yeah yeah i'm like can't lose is not a thing you want to find yourself thinking but uh <laughs> but so, so i think that was sort of part of the impetus for the lyrics me me and my co-host already did the uh talking part about the record and uh he definitely i mean is i did too i was but i was like that's i'm seeing some other stuff going on in this song there's probably these other layers and it's very sexualized all the imagery and blah 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 blah, you know oh what in jackpot plus jackpot plus yeah 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 i mean i that's i but i just i just know i know sweet dempsey was like routinely zach would just kind of throw out like little not fully realized lyrics per se but like kind of sections of ideas like images or little blocks of like a vignette you know Mm -hmm. so the whole the line about like uh sweet dempsey waiting on a number that's a zach line because which i always loved like because my lyric writing at that point was always like mostly kind of berating or a confessional or just like super weird super like abstract word salad Mm -hmm. kind of shit or you know my heart was on my sleeve or whatever and i really admired that kind of writing that like zach's writing always felt more like actual writing like oh here's it's not like some people might write a song where they're literally like gambling is bad it's so fucked up (laughs) right yeah yeah. (laughs) right and the straight edge gambling song (laughs) right whereas like this song would be like Here's a story about a character who's troubled, mm-hmm. who's like, we're going to live the story through the character a little bit. And not that the song fulfills that kind of promise, but those lines, I was like, oh, cool. I would never write something like that. That's yeah. great. Let's use, let's use that. That's awesome. So most of the rest of it, I think, is is mine because I had this syllabification. And now it's kind of embarrassing when I listen, when I think about those songs, when, we're, when I sing them too, I'm like, oh, rhythmically, they're kind of vocally, they're, they're really in the same neighborhood like a little too much like i don't think i would want to you know like kind of like you know eighth notey like i think i would be more conscious of not it feels a little like i was repeating myself without realizing it but you know the idea was it had to be a real rapid fire in that song yeah i mean there's actually quite a bit of lyrics and um and i can tell uh 
the all nerve, no brain, and someday eye parts are probably you. I would take it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the second verse is the one that that to me I was like, oh my gosh, uh, just all sensuality with the desperation of gambling, the sweet baby sucking on a number, sweet Dempsey gladly trips switch after switch. He can feel himself. Shit, that's that straight out through his fingertips. Yeah, that's me too. Yeah, maybe Zach okay. wrote the first line. An easy union, the conception of a near miss. That near sounds. Miss. Yeah. That sounds like you. Yeah. Yeah, that that's definitely something I would write. That's something <laughs> I would write. For me, motorist is so strong, so it, it's in the company of giants for me. So it. Oh man, it's hard for me to. Uh, I, I appreciate jackpot, but I'm like all about motorist. But the lyrics on jackpot are the thing. That, that do stand out to me like that's this i feel like that's the strongest part of that one for me yeah. I guess. Um, that's awesome let's talk about motorist as you mentioned it's it's like a song like static uh, it's become one of the job box standards if you will it's so fun to play that song it's just this solid it's solid <laughs> yeah. you know oh yeah and you guys are all into it when that kim's doing her bounce you're like jumping around it's you know, you can tell you guys are still feeling it. It's also that thing of like, you know, when you when you get obsessed with the idea, we when you get in this kind of like musically outsmarting yourself kind of mindset, like, oh, we can't just play a simple chord. <laughs> you know, let's play it. Let's play a tortured chord or let's play a weird like, oh, my guitar is a simple chord, but therefore Bill's guitar is going to be a weird, we're going to be a weird, make a weird cluster right, or a combination right. together or whatever. And you get in that mindset of writing there's something super refreshing about just playing this kind of two note monolithic. Everybody's on the same page. It might've been a little like rocket from the crypt or like tribe, like Jehu kind of influenced that kind of obsessive or Jesus lizard. Paul, I know. Cause I know these were all things that we were, I mean, I don't think Zach was particularly influenced by any of that, but I know those are all things that were in the hopper for, yeah for the rest of us that makes sense for the time too for sure yeah yeah i mean same like i think jackpot plus was also like there was a little nation of ulysses like wanting to try and partake of some of that kind of energy that like manic energy too you know right that makes sense too but yeah there was something in in like realizing like when for zach to have that beat and to be able to just be like like a lot of times also jamming with him you kind of had to think on your feet and sometimes personally, like I would be wanting to think of these kind of what I would think of as sophisticated, like harmonically sophisticated ideas and just not be able to get my fingers and my brain going fast enough to kind of stay on the ride. So mm-hmm. I would just go to something that's more like oh, dead yeah. simple, like, mm-hmm. like motorist. Yeah. And it was refreshing to feel like that wasn't a cop out, you know? Well, and, and it's refreshing, you know, both for the listeners' ears as well as I'm sure yours to, like you said, to have that little break from the complexity to to something that's just a really strong groove all of a sudden. Yeah, I mean, strong groove was not a word that you would associate with this band up until that point. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, this is the song that always gets referenced with uh, lyrically with uh, the. I don't know if it's Ballard or Ballard, however you say the yeah, last Ballard, name. yeah. Yeah, JG. But it's and... not, yeah, I mean, it's not deep. It's not like, I think this was around, well, my, like my kind of discovering JG Ballard and getting really hooked on him 
coincides with the forming of, of Drawbox. And like his writing was always this kind of like thing that I carried with me. There's just something about, I don't know if it's like a degree of detachment and like the fact that his stories are not really about, like the characters in his stories are kind of ciphers. They're not like, mm-hmm. they're not like super developed as individuals in the way that like you think of in a regular novel. Detached so is they're a always, great word. That's true. Yeah. And so there's just something about his voice as a writer and his perspective that I was just like, this is my guy. Like I really connected with it. And like his way of trying to like take this weird, it's almost like a drone taking off and looking down on this from, you know, on some development from afar. And then, and then also the way that his characters, this is more personal, like the way that his characters tend to be like, he'll have every, almost every story of his is like some kind of, you know, a science fictionalized scenario of things going wrong in a cataclysmic way and things will never be the same again. And some people are panicking about holding on to the life they know, but the protagonists are usually, they usually come around. They're like, Oh no, this is just the next step. Like I have to grow into this. This is where I've been trying to go the whole time. And even in the most fucked up possible thing, it's like, it becomes Mm -hmm. an evolutionary change or adaptation for these characters and they they become themselves in a very twisted like david cronenberg way yeah out of like a, an unthinkable cataclysmic change and, and like referencing cronenberg's uh, perfect also analogy another person that whose work is so both alien and uh human at the same time but also has this kind of his camera is always very like a, through a window it's not you're not in the room necessarily right or right or, or like you're you you have a choice of like if you're going to relate closely to a character it's somebody that you don't really want to be in their skin yeah but that's yeah. who you're that's who you're with for the ride right you know but anyway all those things were just always they're always very close to my heart and and my mind and like so i mean you know motorist was sort of a it's funny bill came up with the title it was a working title for the song just based on the way the groove was. And I think he was like, he thought of it as a title that was kind of vaguely gang of four-ish, you know, um, but like, yeah. uh, but so we had this working title and then uh, it was sort of, so it's a whole bunch of, it's not terribly, lyrics are not terribly co- coherent in that song. It's just putting some things together. Yeah. I mean, the, I guess the lyrical kernel of that song is like, what would you risk to rescue me? Like, you know, I'm as the in the protagonist of the song is like in a sort of a stranded in a tr- in a problem of his own making that seems even potentially it's like super threatening and kind of wants it that way. And basically, that's the question. Like, you know, if you love me, like, how far will you come into the shit? Yeah, <laughs> you know? into the, yeah the wreckage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the rest of it is just kind of trappings like. Uh, you know the idea of like the car wreck is right. just a that's that comes straight out of Ballard, but it's not it's not this sort of like Ballard's crash where it extrapolates the idea that you know he tries to like put the automobile culture like the synthesis of sexuality and like the you know the kind of sexualized like the meaning of like driving a car and that kind of power and that kind of interaction and stuff and and extrapolates it into this other like crazy extreme it's not really it's not really coming from 
that place. It's just using that imagery because that's yeah. what, you know, I was like steeped in that shit at the time. And, you know, some of it was like, some of it I'm not particularly proud of now, like, like division, taking division down to where I shouldn't be. It was a reference to getting lost in Chicago and finding my, and, and I could never find out where I could never get my Chicago geography straight. And so I, I, I often felt lost in Chicago and at that time, Cabrini Green was still in existence. Mm, right. And it was like always the thing that I was warned about. You know, it was just like, it was like, I was like, oh, there are neighborhoods where you don't want to go. And so I'm not excited that that's a lyric in the song anymore. I'm sort of bummed out about it, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't right. necessarily yeah. mean anything. It's an, it's another detail trying to like have something, something tangible that feels like, like an element of a story. Mm -hmm. because what the song what the song is really about is just like i'm down here in the pit and like i believe you can save me but you're gonna you're are you gonna have to go through the yeah exactly so it's a pretty i guess a pretty fucked up song (laughs) (laughs) it's it's great even i mean i think the lyrics are great the wreck imagery is so evocative and that's super helpful because like i mean just from uh where you were coming from point of view that the lines you just said, because I was wondering, those lines always made me think, oh, is there some kind of addiction thing going on here? Because, you know, that's no, why it's probably I, more like codependency. <laughs> well, but yeah. also another addiction. Also, the, also the, choice of, the choice of division as a, the street name was de- that was definitely also conscious because of division, meaning like a, right. you versus me, like we're divided, right? Yeah, yeah. So, Do you recall like the line? That gets repeated. Uh, remember, you told me you will go where you're meant to be. Yeah, Does I that... mean that's not anything. That's not anything specific. It's just. Oh, okay. It's just a. It's totally. It's uh It's just another aspect of like, like remember you told me is. It doesn't relate to something specific, but the idea that, uh, you know. The idea that you're, well, now you're my shrink, Brian. <laughs> but like hey, you're, you're you're digging but, yourself here <laughs> yeah but no but like like no but that that idea that like uh i mean i can't be the only person who carries around a, a personal notion that um you know i'm headed for a, a certain doom you know mm. it's like the the 4 a.m like you wake up in the morning and you're like you think about all the things that could go wrong and they certainly yeah. will right and that that's sort of, that's sort of what it is it's like you're it's that feeling of like well you know this is what you're in for you meaning the protagonist talking to themselves right like i was in for this the whole time yeah this was like in- i was i was bound to get in i was bound to get into the shit you know this is where i'm supposed to be you know so also i guess i guess with the implication that you're not going to get rescued like like you're asking the other person to rescue you and take a big chance but you're not really you're you're just not really bound to actually make it like so it's a downer of a song actually the more yeah. I talk about it. <laughs> That's funny. No, it's, I think every aspect of it, everything works. Lyrically is so evocative and you don't need to know any of those details to relate to it. I mean, you get all the, uh, the feelings that you, in describing what you were thinking when you're going, when you're writing it totally come through without knowing any of the details. And yeah, it's just, it rocks hard, you know? Well, thank you. Yeah. (laughs) So 
oh, you don't remember if you recorded more than a <laughs> couple songs at the time. How did you? No, uh, no. Well, that. Oh, go ahead. I mean that. Yeah, that that session was just those two songs. Okay. For sure. Yeah. How did were you guys happy? Was that the very first time you went in with uh, in yeah. the studio with Zach? Yeah, that was our, that was our first session with Zach. First time working with Don and Ian. Yeah. I don't think at that point that we knew it would be our last, well, it wasn't our, you know, I guess the static split was our last thing with this chord, but I think it was before we had any idea. I mean, those were, yeah, that was you know, kinda, we, didn't, I was we didn't have an album's worth of material written. We had like just a few songs and we were like, let's, you know, when you, let's make a, make a recording with this is, this is the band now. Let's put a stamp on that, you know. And this is but, what uh, we've got so far. So this is what's going to be. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So it, I almost don't need to ask one of the big questions, which is, did you guys know, had you had interest already from the majors yet during this I, period? I think we did. I think it must, it must have overlapped. We must have had it, uh, people sort of asking around at that point, but I don't think we were anywhere near. I know that you were getting near if you weren't there around the time of this recording, you were getting there because I haven't talked to him yet, but I'm going to have, might get her on for the next tar split one. And oh, nice! Yeah, wasn't he uh, part of the whole? He, he was our he was our A and R guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the whole and the and and the he was the reason that we signed to Atlantic because we figured the other contender was what was Shutter was on Epic maybe or Columbia yes. or something. But their their A and R guy Michael Goldstone, he was the other person who was really courting us very seriously. But we were like. Well, Michael Goldstone is definitely from the music industry and Mike Gitter is definitely from our scene. Mm -hmm. Like we, we knew we had known him forever. We knew that he knew, you know, you could say discord to him and he would understand all the things that that might mean. Sure. And we were like, so we just felt an inherent bond of trust with him that, you know, that he would understand why we'd want to do certain things a certain way and, and kind of have our back, you know? You know, you could, yeah, there's a certain level yeah. of trust, I'm sure, too, that goes with one, knowing his background and two, him knowing yours. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. It wasn't just like, you know, it, in the scheme of people that we talked to, you know, whatever. I, I mean, a major label is a multinational corporate enterprise. And when they decide they want what they want, you know, they'll sort of do what they do to try and convince you. Mm hmm. And I have nothing against Michael Goldstone, but I but he didn't do a fanzine in Boston and his he didn't have a band with people that we knew and he didn't come see our bands play and like hang out. And, you know, like, you know, Gitter was from Gitter rose up out of the same thing that, you know, he he was ex excited about the same things in the same way that we were. And, you know, even to the point, you know, Kim knew him from when she was a kid going to shows you know, when she lived in Nashua, New Hampshire, oh. and she would go to shows in Boston, you know, so it's like that shared background. Is, and and I genuinely believe like Mike got that job so that he could give opportunities to bands that he really believed in, you know, not as much for the more classic and real kind of A&R person's reason. Well, whatever, I don't want to, you know, I mean, people, uh, it's, it's like, the major label is the business. You are an exploitable commodity. A good A&R person can see something that's exploitable and that's what they go for. And I, 
that I never thought that was Mike's first instinct. His instinct was, wow, I have an opportunity to, you know, make a living just, just as we did. I have an opportunity to make a living being involved with something I love and I can help give opportunities to people that I know who I really believe in. And I think that I really think is, is, you know, it's not altruism per se, but I think he had really good motives. Yeah. So I think, and I think we felt that at the time. Last thing to to touch on for the actual first seven inch is the, uh, the graphics. I mean, it's, it's pretty to whatever degree straight ahead. What was the thought behind it? I did it with Steve Raskin who played guitar in Edsel, who's a phenomenal graphic designer. Oh, he was an uh, Edsel. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And a lovely guy, like su- mm-hmm. super cool guy. I think it was just, it was the rare occasion of a, of a photograph that we all agreed was cool. Like a photograph of the band playing where it was like, Oh, that's a cool picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause most of the time it's like somebody's making a stupid face or, you know, you see pictures of other bands like nation of Ulysses and they're all like five feet in the air with really good hair. Yeah. Like, it's really good. <laughs> so, yeah. And like, whereas, you know, at Jawbox, it's always like, uh, I'm about 15 pounds overweight and I'm making, making this stupid face and I'm just standing there, you know? And so it was one picture where I was like, oh shit, look, it looks like something cool is happening. We should use, we should yeah, use yeah. that picture yeah. for the cover. I, I like it. Cause it's, I mean, one, it's a little out, of, it's, it's pretty out of focus, but you know, there's this sense of motion, sense of energy, but you know, it's so colorful too. The uh, color wash on it really makes it evocative in a uh, almost my bloody Valentine type of way. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. I mean, I think that was that was part of the idea was like just also to have because we'd had these kind of monochromatic looking mm. covers up to that point to do something that was just like wow, this super colorful, you know, bright. Yeah, you can't thing. get much. Uh, less monochrome than <laughs> this cover. Yeah. Oh. Hey.
Thanks so much, Jay. I got to say, you know, I I always say how much I enjoy the conversations and I do every single one, actually. Some are easier than others. Jay's always an easy interview in a good way. He's super articulate and has really open about his, like you said, his influences, about his background, et cetera. But also, I just, you know, there's still the kid in me at 53 that, when I talk to some of these people that made music that impacted me at a young age, where I'm like, oh, this guy's not going to talk to me. Why would they talk to, you know, every time someone agrees, I'm like so stoked. So this was well, no exception. You know, it's, it's, it's true. Like this is, you know, this podcast is now not young anymore. No. And, and you've stuck with it, uh, you know, despite co-hosts, you know, coming and going. Um, Spike, you know, you've stuck with it, and yeah. and this really is the definitive. There's nothing else like this out there for when it comes to Discord, and so I think, you know, you're getting that respect and getting these interviews. And Jay is a great interview. He's obviously very, very comfortable giving interviews. He's a very good storyteller, and um, you know, there is something about Drawbox that there is this real air of like professionalism when it comes to the band. Like, I feel like that's always been there, even though they were yeah. on Discord. Like, very oh, yeah. conscious about their presentation and just how they come off in general. Just everything about them is very, like, workmanlike, very businesslike. Workmanlike. I don't mean that. I don't mean, yeah. I don't mean that in a bad way. Yeah, not in a, I mean, and not in a pretentious way. In a, uh, in, like you said, a very well thought out because they care about it way. Care about it way, but also the sense that you know, like we said, you'll you'll get into this more your you know your next episode, but just it's not overly shocking that they at the right time, given what they wanted, that they did jump to a major label and tried to make a career out of it. I mean, you know, I think you know probably nineteen year old me felt one way about that, fifty year old me definitely feels a very different way about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is this sense of just yeah, real professionalism with them, and I think that comes across in the way Jay Jay gives interviews, not in a you know, everything is yeah, predetermined kind of way. He just comes off real natural, real smooth. And like, yeah, like I've done this, I've done this before. I know how to, you know, answer your questions and print stories in an interesting, interesting way, you know, and mm-hmm. it's great. It's always great listening to his interviews. Yeah. Agreed. And now I don't get to stump you with what the name of this. Uh, no. Spotify so I'm, I'm going to do this for you, you know, if, because you, you're not hawking enough, you know, if you mm-hmm. like what this podcast does, if you like what Brian does and what, you know, uh, Drew and Scott and myself occasionally, occasionally Ben do, now we could also welcome uh, Ken mm-hmm. yep. to the folds to this. If you like what we do, support it because this is a great thing. And it's, it's, it's not uh, free you know, to, you do it make. out of love. 
Yeah. You do it out of love. You you would you would do this anyway for sure. Yeah. But you know, um, Patreon, you know, a buck or two a month really helps, and you do get something for it, right? You get your bonus episodes. Your have you put out an episode of Long Distance Runner at any time in the or we? Uh... Yeah, it's okay. On, it's not gone, and it's not on Fugazi hiatus. It's in my uh, back pocket to uh, get to. All right. I, but I, if so for I nothing else, yeah. Okay. If for nothing else, if if for no other reason other than just supporting this because it's not free to do, you get access to the Discord server, and um, that is alone is worth is worth a dollar or two a month. I mean, that alone is worth it just for the interactions, the people. Mm-hmm. You're still doing the the occasional, you know, Sunday book club or whatever yeah. meetups you're yeah. doing. So it's it's well worth it. So do that. Um, and also, yeah, I'm not going to mess this up. And I <laughs> chuckle every time someone says it, although I think Scott finally got it down. On Spotify, there's a playlist, and apparently it's being mimicked on Apple Music as well. I don't know how mm-hmm. that's happening or who's doing that. Is someone uh, actually doing that? Yeah, one of the patrons They're is kind that. enough to to put the put the playlist on Apple Music as well. Well, that's, that's excellent. So mm-hmm. it is on Spotify. End on end, the ever-evolving Discord mixtape. And my only regret now is that I didn't make it even more confusing to say. Oh, God. Of course. So, I don't know that... Uh, so, like I said, I haven't heard the Suture episode yet. So, we're not. that's not on there. I don't know that the Suture record is even on Spotify, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm if, guessing if, it's not. But... Yeah, if one of their members who won't go named has a say in it, I'm sure it's not. Oh, okay. I think I, I think I might know which one. Um, (laughs) but anyway, so as of right now, we have 203 songs and that is 10 hours and seven minutes of music. It's amazing to me that this has not even hit 12 hours yet. Like you (laughs) could, like you could listen to this entire playlist twice in a day, in less than a day. But anyway, 203 songs, that's a lot. So we're going to add to that today. I am almost 100% certain I know <laughs> what song we're picking from this. Yeah. So why don't you just make it official? Yeah, yeah. There's there's no reason to beat around the bush on this one. We're scooting on down to the motorist town on this one. It's, indeed, indeed. Yeah, it, it's, it's uh, just glaring. It has to be, right? I agree 100%. Now, here is the problem with that. This version is not on Spotify? I don't think so. It is on I Apple don't Music, so. but damn. Yeah, I don't. So Apple Music has more stuff than Spotify does, huh? I guess. You know, I don't. Uh, I'm going to look real quick, but I don't think this version. Yeah, Novelty does, doesn't have those as bonus tracks. Mm-hmm. My Is it my scrapbook of fatal accidents? Mm-hmm. That's kind of the odds and ends. It's not on Maybe there. It's, is it not on there? Yeah. Uh, it is not on there. So you know what? We're going to have to bite the bullet on this and take the versions mm. from Special Sweetheart. Let's see. Oh, wow. Is there a special edition of... No. I was thinking maybe they even tacked it onto the remaster because they have mm-hmm, both mm-hmm. versions. Maybe like they stuck, but they did not. So the version you're going to hear on the playlist is <laughs> is the Special Sweetheart version. It's not the 7-inch version, but I but guess on Apple Music, uh, yep. whatever kind soul is doing that, uh, can put the seven inch version on there. There you go. Right. Yeah, that's too bad. Oh well. So it is. This has been a pleasure, man. I yeah, enjoyed has. this immensely. This will not be the last time. I hope not. I'm gonna hold you to time. it. 
No, it it won't be. And in fact, hopefully much, much sooner than than 10 months. I'm, I'm really <laughs> yeah, let's that. hope so. I was kind of wish I was on the next one because I love mm-hmm. Tar. Yeah. I love him. So I need to get more into him. Like it was not my scene back in the day. And everything I've heard about them and little snippets I've heard recently, I'm like, how did I miss this band? And that new band they have, Deep Tunnel Project, is really cool too. Mm. So that I don't know. I don't yeah. know that band. It's with the band uh, they Silkworm preceded people. Tar. Uh-huh. Oh, with Silkworm, really? Yeah. The band that preceded Tar was called Blatant Descent. And, oh, uh, I know that name. Yeah, I don't know that, that, that was that was Tar before they were Tar. At least some of the guys, and yeah. uh, that stuff was good too. And I did see, I did see Jawbox and Tar play together. I mean, mm-hmm. they toured together and played CBs and. Uh, so great. I mean, just loved oh, both bands cool. at the time. Yep. So speaking of that, what's coming up next week? <laughs> next time. That, I know. Well, funny you should mention. <laughs> 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 no, you know, again, another seven inch. Well, the, this seven inch I'd heard this episode, of course, but next episode, I'd never heard that seven inch until the other night, literally. So I had no idea that Jawbox's tar I mean, Jawbox's static on that seven inch was not their version, and and vice versa. That Tar do <laughs> you know, something. Oh, you didn't know that. Yeah, I had yeah. no idea. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll save the secret for that. Make sure you hear the original. The, you the original Tar version too, so you. Can I make, do want to. Yeah, a that's comparison a good point. of that. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what album it's on, but I think it's on. Might be on Roundhouse, but I wouldn't swear to that. But yeah, yeah good. Good to be interesting. Yep. All right. So. Cool. Well, man, I almost don't want to stop because it feels like we're just back in the saddle again. But as things must, and these episodes have been getting shorter. I don't know if you've noticed in general, minus the uh, recent five hour episode, uh, the, these shows. Oh, have been the, well, it was tighter. Jeff Nelson. You know, you yeah. had to do it. Yep. And I just got to say, too, man, also, we didn't talk about this, but really, like you said, like for the first time, there's been the passing of, of some Discord family members since this podcast right. started mitch parker of course I who know. was the bass player on boycott stab he wasn't a guest on the show no. but man i i kind of had a tear in my eye listening yeah. to charles stack yeah and just knowing that he passed away i mean what not even a week probably after you did that interview and Roughly hearing him at the end of yeah. the uh yeah hearing him at the end of the episode just talking about uh Oh, I'm going in for some surgery. You know, like I've gone into some surgery. You've gone in for some surgery. Like it's the last thing you think about. And yeah, yeah. knowing that little Not off the cuff man. remark. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, Scott said something that really, I think, was a very beautiful thing for him to say. And he mentioned, you know, basically paraphrasing or putting it into how I would have phrased it, but... Obviously, you know, Charles Steck's passing was terrible. He was a young guy, right? He was, what, probably late 50s, something like that? You know, mid 50s, something no, like that. Probably late 50s to late early 50s, 60s. Early he, 60s. He was one of the older ones of the group, but still not Either that way, old. Not that old. Not in our age, you know, in, in, in the year 2023, that's too young. Yep. Oh, way too young. But you know what? If I was going to pass away prematurely, to be able to spend one of the last days of my life hanging out, even if it's on a Zoom call with like my old friends, my old bandmates, and talk for a few hours about like those times and this great thing that we did together. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, I could think of worse ways to spend one of my last days on earth, um, in that way. And Scott kind of said something about like about that idea. And I, I completely agree with that. And so I think it was just wonderful that you were able to, uh, to have him on and capture that. And, uh, I gotta say, like, I've loved a lot of the records that you covered in those 19 episodes and those high back chairs records really, really are sticking with me. I love them. Like I know, I, I'm always stoked to hear like in our me and your chats together uh, off air that mm-hmm. you'll uh, bring them up here and there. It's like, yeah, it, it's cool to because they're they're such a outlier on the Discord catalog yeah. and for good reason in the style and the timing, but not in the performances and their songs. I mean, what a hidden gem. Absolutely. Absolutely. Love him. And uh, the other big revelation for me was Thog. So he'd never heard that record. And uh, oh, wow. boy, did I fall in love with that record. Did you? Cool. Yeah, I yeah. did. Yeah. There's a lot so of good good. stuff in there that, that, you know, it was fun checking out and listening to it. I just was sad that I wasn't jumping in on the conversation, <laughs> but it yeah. was great. And I will definitely, this will definitely not be the last time. Uh, you know, always save you a seat here. So, so all right. Yeah. I get to take advantage of that. All right. Take care. It's been really good talking with you again, Jeff. You too. You too. All right. Craig, that's who does this now, right? That's right. Craig, please take us out. And I